a lot of us aren't old enough to have been around then, to know about the double V campaign that the African-American communities around the nation launched during World War II, which was for V for victory in against fascism in, in Europe and V for victory against racism and discrimination right here in the States. So, you know, we have that familiar drama of African-American soldiers who fought in literally every American war. Um, and after every war, after having shown, proven their valor on the battlefield, they would return home expecting better treatment than what they left and would encounter, you know, um, more of the same. And so in 1945, you know, in Miami, which was, benefited from segregation in you know in ways that a lot of other um black communities around the south did not i mean uh the the black community here uh, thrived economically because you know there were hotels uh, um you know catered to tourists and and even to celebrities who could perform on Miami Beach but couldn't stay in those hotels so uh the the, the scene was a little different here and um so in 1945, uh, some folks decided, well, you know, Miami is getting ready to open up. You know, the war is winding down. They're already advertising to the world that this is the sun and fun capital and come to the miles of beaches. And yet there was no beach for the um, colored, as we were called then, community that was so instrumental in building the town into an attractive place to come to in the first place building the sewer system, building the railroads, et cetera. And so there was just a, a determination by the community that, you know, we, um, the time has come and, and, you know, not least for the soldiers who are coming home to have some justice on, on this front. And now the interesting thing to me, and I'm, see, I'm not a native Miamian, so I had to uh, learn this uh, after, you know, coming here. Um, when one of the uh, well, one one of the organizers of this protest that took place on May ninth, nineteen forty five, tomorrow would be the seventy fifth anniversary, uh, was a lawyer who would become the first African American judge in the South uh, since Reconstruction, uh, whose name was Lawson Thomas, and his widow was one of the founding members of our Virginia Key Beach Park Trust, which is the the the, the group that is was established by the city of Miami to restore and reopen the, the, the park. Uh, and uh, her name, Eugenia Thomas, who she was kind of a local heroine in her own right, you know, a real champion of the PTA and has an elementary school named after her. She shared uh, one morning we were, you know, in the early stages of, you know, fighting to save the site from developers so that we could restore it, casually mentioned that she could remember that morning when her husband left to go out to that demonstration with a bag full of cash uh, to pay bail because this was civil disobedience. They they told the sheriff they were coming. They were prepared to be arrested, uh, which was a real big deal back then. It wasn't like in the civil rights movement when being arrested could be a badge of honor. Uh, In 1945, that could just ruin your life, but people were courageous enough to, to, to dare that to happen. And when she shared with the, 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 the group in, in this meeting with the uh, city manager, uh, there was a kind of a lull in the meeting. She says, you know, I remember that morning when Lawson left and the door clicked shut behind him 
And I was prepared not to ever see him alive again. And that was when everybody in the room kind of woke up to how significant this was. I mean, we would think that fighting for a beach was something kind of trivial. But the reality was that even though they had alerted the sheriff and all, there was no guarantee that the sheriff would show up and not Ku Klux Klan thugs. And, you know, I mean, that was the South. So um, when we think of the people who went out there, there were a couple of courageous women. There were some, uh, a few sailors who joined it. Um, a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people who had said they would be there kind of, I guess, went to sleep on it and woke up in the morning and said, eh, I don't think so. So the ones who, who went on there and, 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 and did the brave thing, uh, really, in the scheme of things, to be just honored and commemorated and remembered. And so that's why we wanted to make a, a real point of sharing with the community and with the world this bit of history that would otherwise get, get forgotten. And then especially now that we can't have public gatherings, which we would have had uh, to celebrate this, um, we are doing the, the virtual thing and having the advantage of reaching a wider audience like yours. So thank you again for, um, you know, uh, uh, helping us get that. And then the only thing I'll add and, 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 uh, is uh, that that beach, once it was established, went on to become just this unheard of colored park in the South, I mean, with amusement rides and bathhouse and concession stands and all these amenities that, that, you know, nobody, you know, colored parks in the South did not have. So just as uh, celebrities used to come to the, um, you know, the historic communities and stay in the hotels, they would come there. You know, I, people mention it, Billy Holiday and Nat King Cole and Ella Fitzgerald. I don't know for sure that they were there, but that people like that would come out there. And um, um, Dr. Martin Luther King himself, who had a, a close friend in Miami, uh, when he would come to visit, he himself visited there. So the place has, uh, you know, um, a lot of history. Uh, a lot of people have, uh, it became like the hub of, 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 of black life in, in so many ways. So a lot of folks in Miami, you know, um, uh, you know, traced their spiritual rebirth to there because that's where we got baptized, you know, full immersion, baptism in the ocean. Um, and some folk, um, you know, since it was Lover's, Lover's Lane, uh, you know, there's one young man who boasts about being conceived there, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, that's funny. <laughs> so we're yeah. talking about, you know, mo- just, just many meetings on many levels. Mm, Very special right. place. Well I, well, I want to let you know that uh, Mr. Guy uh, Fortune, is, is yeah. that how you pronounce your last name? Um, yes, it is Fortune. Of- yeah, I was like, I think it's Fortune. Well, you know, you've been on the show before, uh, <laughs> and um, it's always really wonderful uh, to talk to both of you about, you know, sort of what you all are doing there. It just sounds just really marvelous, and I'm so happy that we'll be able to participate because now you're doing a virtual celebration since I haven't made any of the other wonderful events that you all have had. So I was wondering, what, what would you like to add to um this conversation about the Virginia Key Beach, um, of which you know you um, are the, I guess, administrator of of the trust. Um, I, I would just add, following uh, Mr. Tinney, who I think uh, 
really painted the picture of importance and history of this space. Um, I think operationally, and these are in some interesting times now where today we are literally closed. And so you've got 82 of the most beautiful acres uh, of Miami waterfront closed to the public. Um, but our focus, when things begin again, um, welcoming back the, the, the public, but really, again, continuing to focus on the construction of the museum building, the interpretive space um, that will recognize those heroic African-Americans that did go into the water in Hallover Beach and fight to, to give African-Americans a place in South Florida to recreate. But um, we're really just going to keep our, keep our heads down and keep focusing on putting the pieces together so that the museum itself can be built. Mm-hmm. How's that coming along? Like, um, what's, we're what's at a place, the date on completion? <laughs> well, we're at a place uh, where last year we were able to get uh, the City of Miami Commission to unanimously support um, 10 years of, of operational funding, um, any carryover funds that the trust was not able to, to raise, that the city would have our back operationally for 10 years after the doors opening. So that was a major milestone. And with that, um, that gave the county, which has of general obligation bond funds and convention development tax funds that the entire Miami-Dade County voted for in favor of $20.5 million to build the museum and do capital improvements across the 82 acres. And so that, that passage, that unanimous support of the project from the city told the county that the city is ready to move forward with, with the Virginia Key Beach Park Trust to do this project. So we're now in a place where we are in the selection process of a museum planning firm to begin working out that final timeline, the selection process of the museum builder. So that's what I'm hoping we can see some real progress on before the end of this year, before mm -hmm. 2021. Um, if all of that goes smoothly, we're really talking about a three-year, you know, planning and construction period. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was reading um, some of the notes that uh, Brother uh, Denny Zulu um, sent me. Um, about about this particular um, uh, beach and this particular um, sort of landscape, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about the uh, 82 acres. That's a lot. That's a that's a large large space, and 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 just how you know these uh, people of African descent, you know, claimed it. And um, from what I was reading, that there was uh, another beach that the white um, community use, and, and in light of how large this space is, how could it be closed down from 1982 to 2008? Like, 
What was happening? Well, um, and, 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 you know, and Mr. Diddy, you can give your take on this also. Uh-huh. But I, I will, I will say, you know, kind of in a, in a short way, one, I mean, we're really, we're talking about the city of Miami as opposed to Miami beach. So when people think of Miami and beaches and sunshine and South beach, I mean, that is the municipality of Miami beach. And the city of Miami, the mainland, um, largely has seawalls. It really doesn't have beaches except for the island of Virginia Key. And so it, it went justly forgotten because it is, there's one way to the island, one bridge, Rickenbacker Causeway that takes you to it. Um, I think partially also the history, the rich history of the place held off developers. It also just sort of kept it as a secret, sacred spot that was waiting for a reactivation, which came in 2008. Um, You know, another way to answer that is South Florida has so many beaches, something this incredible could be closed for that long. (laughs) <laughs> very, Mr. Kitty, I don't know if you would have Yeah, very, very, very true. And I think the, the, the point you made about it, it being a sacred site, you know, there's, there's no category in the law books for sacred site, but that's a, that's a, a reality. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of us, myself included, it's, you can hardly believe how many schemes and scams and, and uh, visions and plans were made you know, to, to, to put on that island, a helicopter this or that, a, a camping ground. Or the, and, but the, that, that, um, the fact that that was a place that had such rich history, I, I, I dare say that just the power of that, as Mr. Fortune suggested, is, was enough to kind of hold off a lot of that. And then when it really came down to, uh, in the late uh, 90s, in 1999, as a matter of fact, when, in fact, there were plans to build this exclusive uh, campground resort, uh, and that was kind of quietly going through the pipeline, but the word leaked out. And once the word got out and we were able to just alert the uh, community, then, I mean, between the African-American community, uh, environmental preser- uh, uh, activists, uh, historic preservationists, there's a whole coalition just immediately came together around the fact that no, 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 this, the intelligent way to use this land is to restore it and make it, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, vibrant place that it was. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautifully people who come here for the first time just are just captivated by how scenic this, this space is. And when we talk to the, elder generation who, you know, enjoyed it during the hell, the heyday, you know, what you hear so many times, <clears throat> excuse me, is, oh, it was paradise. It, it was like a vacation in the Bahamas without leaving Miami. It was, it was mm-hmm. just such a, a, a special place. And the fact that it had, you know, uh, I, I mentioned, you know, amusement rides, you know, a, a carousel, a mini train. It, it, these were Things that you know, colored parts. No, that that you know, nobody had that. And um, the um, and then the fact that you know, we we, we fast forward you know a little bit to after um, integration, 
and you know, one more time, you know, Miami was way ahead of everybody else. Um, back in 1945, people weren't fighting to for integration or assimilation. They, it was for okay, the, the law says separate but equal. We want a colored park that's separate and equal, and that's what that's what you know was was you know delivered, and or, or very nearly equal. And but then by 1959, you know, the, the time had come like, look, all these racial restrictions is, uh, you know, we had the broad, I'm sorry, the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 that segregation is just unconstitutional. It's time to be done with that. So, you know, well ahead of the rest of the country, the beaches were uh, desegregated for a moment, a brief moment. The county decided, oh, well, we don't need two beaches anymore. You can close this one down and everybody can go to the formerly whites-only beach on Key Biscayne, um, the next island over. But by popular demand, people said, no, 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 Virginia Key Beach was just too it was too beautiful, too important, um, uh, too, um, um, too well-liked. And so it was, you know, reopened and kept open. And then... By the 70s, you know, we had the splashdown parties, and those kind of got to be nationally known. Um, and then, you know, there was, by 1982, there was this whole issue of, you know, oh, the city is, you know, hurting for money and can't afford to keep the, 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 the beach open. And so that's how they closed it down. And as Mr. Fortune mentioned, I mean, with only one road in and one road out, it, it, it was kind of an you know, easy thing to do logistically. Although during that time, you know, they did there were some uses, uh, you know, picnics and yeah. police practice. Uh, um, some of the bullet the, the buildings got all pocked with bullet holes from police practice, if you can imagine such a thing, um, yeah. which nowadays is not too hard to imagine. Um, and um, and then we had some, you know, there were movies made there. Uh, uh, what was the movie? Uh, Wild Things. Uh, right, Wild uh, Things. Nev Campbell. That that was shot out there. You know, it was part of the uh, uh, and and a few others. So there's a lot of different bits and pieces of history. And then I guess the the, the part that might be most captivating to um, today's audience is the fact that um, this is where every June. We hold our ancestral remembrance of the Middle Passage uh, ceremony, and um, and that's kind of on the second weekend in June, which is in solidarity with a lot of others around the, the country. And, and, and Wanda, you know, of course, you you had such a role in helping encourage and network and let people know about those um, those ceremonies. And last year, we actually had a National Geographic um, TV channel. Their crew was out there and um, videotaped the a portion of our ceremony there. So that's just gone mm-hmm. uh, global. And it aired right during that same week that we were, you know, observing the 400th anniversary of the first Africans to arrive, captive Africans to arrive in North America in the English colonies in, in, in August. So uh, it's a, it's a, um, I'm sure what you're getting from all of this is just just how how special that place was, even among you know uh, the many um, 
colored beaches that were around, you know, you know, Florida has a 1600 mile coastline. I mean, that's, that's just for one state. (laughs) So there was space for quite a few beaches, not, not enough, but, but, but quite a few, each one with a story to tell, but none with a story quite like Virginia Key. So, um, uh, you know, that's, so I'll just, you know, add that to it. Mm, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is really, yeah, sounds really wonderful. So what's planned for this 75th anniversary and how can people um, be present? Ah, <laughs> well, I, I guess as with everything else, uh, it has to be virtual mostly. Uh, one mm-hmm. thing that we are asking folks to do, and, and, and this could be shared virtually, is, you know, as we commemorate that, you know, those courageous folk in 1945 were trying to reach out to the families of those people or friends or descendants or relatives who can just provide a little more, you know, inside information, if you will, so we can bring that story, you know, more to life. And then the the um, the big anniversary would have been August 1st because that's when the, the beach, as a result of the protest on May 9th, actually open mm-hmm. and the, the county was just prodded to into action and um but because of you know the pandemic we won't have that great big birthday party that we were you know planning but we can do it uh virtually so to speak which you know by just sharing as as, as much as we can and, and just inviting people getting the word out so that folks can go online and, 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 and do that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say that, and I, I always have to, nowadays I, I, I almost can't do that without kind of putting that caveat in the back of our mind as African people that, you know, as much as we value the our, our skills and abilities to communicate through digital media and our computers, you know, so much of this, hardware depends on this renewed scramble for and rape of Africa for the, you know, the raw materials. So you have the child labor, the forced labor, and all that stuff we need to be aware of, too. As we, you know, every, every time we mention vertical, vir, virtual, we got to be aware that, eh, let's not just take this so for granted. Let's be aware that there's a social, economic, political, and environmental, and even spiritual price being paid that as we shape our future, we've got to know how to make that part of our new equation, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Do you recommend anything in particular um, with regards to, um, you know, equity and remembrance of the price of this virtual explosion in the world? Well, we... Yeah, I mean, for sure, I mean, we we have to do something uh, in the way of, I think you used the right word, you know, just equity, that, uh, okay, you know, if um, if African people, including children who are, you know, laboring in cobalt mines instead of going to school, uh, is the, then, look, let's do some kind of fair trade, you know, uh, certainly the corporations that are um, profiting from this um, with the profit that's being made have the the means you know to do that and I, I suppose I mean at the risk of sounding a little you know, uh, 
what uh, wildly speculative. Uh, you know, we have um, a long history of transferring knowledge, communicating long before there were telephones and internet and all of that. Uh, so there's a there's a there's a whole um, cultural way of being more in harmony with nature and the rest of the, uh, of life that also kind of just contributes to having a common understanding of, you know, who we are, what we are, how we fit into the rest of nature and the universe, and which is, you know, a whole lot of what life is really all about in terms of, you know, what makes it meaningful for us, that, you know, we can revive, and I think that in turn will guide how we just make wiser and better use of the resources that makes the, you know, the digital communication possible. So that's all, um, you know, part of our proactive look ahead. I mean, I, I, I keep hearing folks talking about this pandemic and when we return to normal. No, there's no returning to normal because what was going on before was not normal. You don't get <laughs> the kind of disparity in, you know, the death rate that, that we're looking at by doing normal things. So I'm I'm going a little off the the, the, the Virginia Key topic, but <laughs> I think that's part of the the, the larger picture. Yes, that it, we is, it is connected. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, but our knowledge system is based on connecting all dots. So there, there you go. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, Mr. Fortune, um, as we sort of wind down this this conversation. Uh, I I did link to the uh, Virginia Key Beach Park dot net website. Um, is there going to be anything on the website about you know this 75th anniversary um, celebration um, in lieu of the physical, like being in the space itself right at the moment? Are you all doing anything tomorrow? Um, um, is something going to happen on August 1st? Um, you know, virtually, if not, yeah, probably virtually, that people can um, I, um, expect. You know, via via our uh, in in terms of the the 75th anniversary anniversary of the wade in at Hallover, um, yes. I don't believe we'll be having anything posted on the website. Maybe a small mention, but the August 1st. Um, we'll be unveiling how all of that will work in the coming weeks. We have been, you know, really holding off and hopeful that that some form of the larger event that we planned and inviting the community to the park was still going to take place. And just recently, really in the last couple of weeks, we have to stop those plans and know that, you know, we would not be doing the really large event that we wanted to do. And so we have some commitments we have made that we are still untangling and backing out of and changing. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've, we we powwowed around and, and thought of how we could do this virtually. 
and have just come to it. Some of the last details still have to be uh, sorted out, but I would say in the next couple of weeks, we'll start advertising it online um, and putting it out there for August 1st. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And, um, and, and, and I'll just add, for tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, not, not necessarily by tomorrow, but we, we'll certainly be putting out a little bit more of information about the, the actual history of what happened on um, you know, on, on, on May 9th on the website so people can go and just, you know, get a few of the names of people and, 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 and you know, what that whole drama was like. Okay. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. Right, yeah, and we'll have to have you on again yeah, to talk about some of the folks that um, that were there that are still around now and, and those stories that you're collecting. Um, what I would love to see is to be able to go to the Virginia Key Beach Park dot net website and be able to see um sort of a gallery of, of, of faces and and click on them and hear their story about why this action was so important and, and just the the memories of you know utilizing this this natural resource and how that connects to you know African people and the waterways. And that's mm-hmm. definitely something that can be posted and stay up right on through mm-hmm. August 1st. I, I know we're winding down. I was going to say typically, Mr. Kenny, I know you take a group out to haul over and have, you know, mm-hmm. historically gotten great media coverage and front page coverage of the Miami Herald on those efforts. Um, this right. year, beaches are closed. Um, you know, very different type of scenario, but those other mediums um, and online are what will have to be used and carry it forward to August 1st. Right. And and then, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because what we can do is make sure that we, the, the 1970, you know, the uh, 70th anniversary, uh, 1970, I've got it right, in 2015, the 70th anniversary, um, when we did get the did get that front page coverage. I had the gathering at Hallover. Um, that coverage, we'll, we'll make sure to get that on on, on the website as a you know Online, archive correct. document. Yeah, yeah. Because that tells quite okay. a bit of the story as well. Mhm. Oh, well, maybe that was um, the first time that I had you on the show, uh, Mr. Fortune. Was on that particular occasion. Uh, very possibly. Yeah. I have to go back and look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, my next guest is in the studio, um, so we'll have to, um, you know, um, move on from this this part of the program. But I want to thank both of you so much. And um, do you have any any closing comments? Well, I would say just to thank you for all your diligent work yeah. and for uh, inviting us to share this and. Um, Hopefully, you know, folks will, you know, visit the website and be as inspired as we are and, and uh, you know, carry this into their own communities. Mm-hmm. And, and for yeah. me also, thank you very much for having us all. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. You all take good care and be safe. And uh, you're looking forward to the time when the beaches will be reopened um, and people can actually um, sort of partake in this wonderful uh, natural treasure um, firsthand. Yes. So uh, Thank we, you. 
Yes. yes. We've okay. been by the way, by the you know, we we've been mentioned as the best beach in Miami, just so people know. <laughs> okay. So. All righty. Okay. Thank you again. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're quite welcome. You, you, Be well. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. You as well. Bye. Bye bye. Good morning, Leroy Moore. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm good. It's been a minute. Uh, you've been so busy with the book tours and new books and putting on festivals. And and more recently, I'm so happy that, you know, you're bringing uh, the, to the attention, um, you know, sort of um, during COVID-19, what's going on with uh, people with disabilities, right? Um, it's sort yeah. of like... Um, I mean, it's not like people with disabilities are a part of the the national discourse anyway, or even, you know, the discourse within the municipalities. And then now with this disease, you know, just running rapid, um, you know, one wonders. And then if you're a person with disabilities as a person of color, then, you know, you got all that too because racism, as someone told me um, when I was commenting on the police shooting um, this person uh, here in the Bay, uh, in in, uh, in San Leandro at the Walmart, that yeah. you know, racism is, didn't didn't take a break. Nope, nope, it's still here, it's still here. Not, yeah. not that you know, it gets worse in emergencies. You know, racism causes ugly head in emergencies. So yeah, I mean, we right. saw that in you know New Orleans. Yeah. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. And you, um, Leroy Franklin Moore Jr., you're the founder of the Crip Hop Nation. And since 1990, you've written a column in Illin, Illin and Chillin for Poor Magazine. And you're one of the founding members of the National Black Disability and activists around police brutality against people with disabilities. Uh, you started and helped start organizations like Disability Advocates for Minorities Organization, Two Sins uh, Invalid to Crip Hop Nation. Your cultural work includes film documentary, Where is Hope? Police Brutality Against People with Disabilities, spoken word CDs, poetry books, and children's books, uh, and the children's book, Black Disability, Disabled Art History 101, published by uh, Hochul. Justice Press. Uh, your graphic novel, Crip Hop Graphic Novel Issue 1, Brown Disabled Young Woman Superhero Brings Disability Justice to Hip Hop, was published by Poor Press in 2019 and uh, 2020 under Poor Press. Uh, Leroy also published Black Disabled Ancestors. And you've traveled internationally networking with other disabled activists and artists and you wrote, sang, and collaborated and do music videos on black disabled men. So tell us about um, these two um, programs that um, that are coming up. One is today, right, and the other one is on the 16th? Yeah, so one is today. Is, of course, it's going to be you know, online, um, a Zoom um, conversation with two other black disabled um, activists, you know, talking about, you know, COVID-19 and what that does for the black disabled um, community. So it's going to be at 4 o'clock, you know, California time. 
Yeah, I think you have to register first, but there's a link to um to that event. You can go on Facebook and you know look at it. I just post it, so you can go on my timeline and you know click on it. So yeah, so that's coming out today at four o'clock. Mhm. Right. Right. And um, uh, so the, who's going to be involved in this particular um, uh, program? The first one of of the two I just mentioned. So we're going to do myself, Latif McLeod. He's a black disabled poet, writer, activist. Also on Doreen Taylor. Um, they are from Seattle. And they do disability justice work. Matter of fact, I just interviewed. I interviewed them around um, Pan African and disability, and had a, a wonderful conversation about that. And the last one is um, Marsha Ellie, and um, I think she's down south. And she does a lot of um, black, um, black activism in the South. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all of us on a, you know, Zoom talking about you know black disabled um, you know, activism at this time. And I know for myself, I'm really going to concentrate on. The term that I came up with is called Black Ableism. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wrote about that is that I think black disabled people is that the black community is becoming almost irrelevant to them, useless to them. And it's hard to say, but I'm seeing that. I've been seeing that in my life. (laughs) 52 years that the black community is is not um, a source of information or a source of anything if you're disabled and black. So I'm going to talk about that in the state of um, this virus. Right, yeah. I was just thinking... It would have been nice to have something of yours to play because um, you've got music and things like that. Um, yeah, and if you can multitask, you could you could email me and I could maybe yeah. get it up. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> okay, sure. So, um, you know, black ableism because um, I've actually had um, Latif um, on my radio show before, and he's participated in the poetry celebration at West Oakland. Library that um, the first Saturday, and um, yeah, he's a really wonderful um, artist. And some of the other artists I don't know, but I I was just thinking about certain epicenters of of the you know of the disease you know where people are really being hit hard. And New Orleans, um, of all of the Louisiana cities, is carrying over half of the uh, cases and uh, casualties as well. Um, And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I was just talking to uh, some friends 
from Florida, and Florida's, you know, really hard hit, and then, you know, New York and and California. You know, we've yeah. got some big numbers. And and I was just wanted to ask you if uh, historically um, if there's any any parallel to what's happening now uh, with this disease and, and, and sort of the survival rate, you know, and and also access to health care um, and, and other types of um, things. Like, for instance, you know, we talk about now, you know, people have to shelter in place and, 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 you know, and people can't afford, a lot of people can't afford to shelter in place. And so people are not able to pay their rent. There was a rent strike, a national rent strike last Friday, May 1st. And and there are you know whole buildings that are are withholding you know payment um, for you know because there was something wrong with the with the uh, <laughs> with the dwelling anyway and 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 then we talk of you know the, uh, the uh, those in office talk about you know not having to pay you know not being evicted not having to pay but then if you know when you can pay again. You have five months of <laughs> back. Uh, yeah. You know how are you going to pay that if you weren't even working? So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges. You know, when you add to that, you know, um, you know, a disability, um, because people, you know, if you're on Social Security or a disability, the in, your income is not that great in the first place. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. You know, I'm I'm on SSI, you know. And yeah, you know, this you know, in, in all emergency we we saw it in, you know, Cortina is that people with disabilities get hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. And and what what's so frustrating is that you know, after the emergency they you know, the the state and the government still don't learn from from what they've been through. So for example, you know, we talk about sheltering in place, you know, and all and through this time, you know, people are are discovering Zoom and all that stuff. You know, people with disabilities have been doing that since day one, you know, because we have to. You know, a lot of people with disabilities work from home, you know, so so all all the stuff that we're doing now, you know, all of a sudden there's funds for it. People with disabilities have been trying to get, you know, government and the workplace to do that, you know, to make it more accessible. So it's interesting that, you know, in the state of COVID-19 that we're doing this, and that is all of a sudden it's, it's okay to do, and there's money for it. So, you know, the question is, you know, as we come, come out of this, you know, do do we go back to our, you know, um, quote-unquote regular lives, which is going to be impossible, or do, or do we implement these things and make it more accessible that that people with disabilities have been trying to do since day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And then I would think because, um, you know, people with disabilities, you know, often involve, you know, sort of movement, like, 
not having the kind of physical movement that um, other people might be able to like. So, you know, like, you know, maybe the person might be <clears throat> have mobility issues or speech issues. And so um, one has to be really creative. And I'm thinking as a resource, um, people that have been using these different technologies all along, you know, to go to school, to get around, to be employed, to to be an artist, you know, to share work, um, you know, your community um, would be one that is an asset for for presently. So, you know, like you, you seem like you might have so many demands on, you know, asking for support around these different technologies that a lot of people are just encountering, just, you know, becoming aware of. Yeah, even though yeah. they didn't just 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 come on the scene. Mhm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we'll you know we'll see if you know that you know people will do that you know on on a national level. You know. Mhm. You know, you know, a lot a lot of people just have to wear masks. You know, even before this. You know, during the during the um, fires last year, with all of that smoke, you know, mm-hmm. once again the key came to people with disabilities. Like, okay, how do how you know how how do you live with, with this? Because a lot of people with disabilities have you know environmental you know disabilities, so they. They had their mask, you know. They had mm-hmm. ways to to live in in that smoke. So, so yeah, we'll we'll see if you know society, you know, totally change and really uplift on um, what people with disabilities have been doing. You know. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what's um. This uh, the these two um, uh, events is there. Um, I think I think they're fundraisers too, right? Yeah. So the 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 concert that Queer Pop is doing on June 16th. Yeah, we're raising funds for two organizations. One in New York. Um, it's called Open Doors, and that and that. Um, organization um, has a group called Reality Poets, and they're black men, you know, recovering from um, gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. But they they use um, poetry and art as a therapy. So we're gonna raise funds for them. You know they're they're in um, Manhattan, so they they've been really going through it right now. And another organization is in Detroit called Warriors on Wheels, and they they are really kicking butt. I interviewed them a couple of weeks ago, and they started on um, a food service to deliver food. To um, you know, people with disabilities, elderly people in Detroit. So they're covering the whole Detroit area. It, it you know it goes further than 
in uh, Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels is, you know, prepared meals. This is, you know, you get a list of the foods that you want, and they go pick it up from the store and deliver it to you. So um, they, they've been doing that. They've been doing this for a couple months, and they had their house startup money, and they want to go national with with this project. So it's three black disabled women that started this in Detroit. So we're going to read some for them, too. Oh, that's excellent. <clears throat> so that's um, May 16th? Excuse me? Is that that's May 16th? Oh, yeah, this is the concert May 16th, 2 until 5. You know, it's going to be online. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, Wanda, the concert is going to be wonderful. It's the first time <laughs> that we're doing this Crip Hop Nation, and we have artists from um, Germany, Spain, Africa, um, the U.S., of course, we just got a new artist from Brazil. Um, and it's all art. We have visual artists. You know, visual artists are going to show their artwork. We have poets. We have DJs. Um, one of the co-founders, Keith Jones, is going to show how he DJs with his feet. That's what he does. He DJs with his feet. So it's going to be really good. It's going to be really good and really psyched about it. You know, it's the first first um, online concert that we've done. You know, it's international. So, yeah. Oh, that's going to be really, really awesome. Yeah. Wow. Super, super. Um, so um, folks can go. You, you mentioned your Facebook. What's your Facebook site again um, so that people can go and uh, yeah, register just, for the event. Yeah, diving Crip Hop Nation, Crip with a K, Crip Hop Nation, or Leeway Moore. Yeah. All right, cool, cool, super, super. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your own, um, you know, um, work as as an artist and as an activist, and you sort of navigating, you know, the world as a a person, you know, uh, of African descent, you know, um, with these other, other, you know, this presentation, you know, a person, you know, who is, you know, disabled, but not really disabled, but, you know, that's the label. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about your life. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, mm-hmm. been, it's been, what, 53 years on this earth as a black man, you know. <laughs> I look at my two IDs as a cultural identity of so being mm-hmm. black, of course, you know, you know, being part of the black community, being disabled, I look at that as a cultural identity. So um, being disabled, being part of the, you know, disability movement, you know, not only here in the U.S., but internationally, you know, um, you know, one 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 new thing that I've been doing is having uh, monthly talks. It's called Black Disabled Men Talk. 
because mm-hmm. I was looking around, I was like, you know, there's, there's not a real um, forum where blacks and old men can just talk and come together. So we've been doing that for the last five months, and it goes up on YouTube. So it's mm-hmm. me, Latif McLeod, Keith Jones, and Otis Smith. And that's been going on. It's been really, really great, you know, um, to get that out. So I've been doing that, you know. So, you know, before this um, virus, um, Crip Hop was about to go to South Africa and really do a major um, festival in South Africa. Um, a lot of artists from South Africa was looking at us. And we did our festival last year, and we brought um, six disabled um, African musicians here to do a tour. So they looked at that and they said, oh, we want to do one in South Africa. So we've been, you know, collaborating for a year now. And we were going to do not only a festival, but a book and a, a movie about it. So, um... You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen now because of the virus. But that's, that's one thing that we've been working on this whole year is that festival in South Africa. And also, you know, coming back here, we've been working on to get, to get out this um, movie about the late Joe Capers. And Joe Capers wow. was... Yeah, music engineer in Oakland started the first um, accessible studio in, in Oakland Hills, you know, and produced Tony, 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 and Vogue, and the Hammer, you know, and we, we, we've been on this for almost, God, almost, what, 12, 13 years. So we were going to um, have a big thing in Oakland, and not only to bring out the film, but we were also going to have a visual art show because um, Crip Hop Nation for the last five years have been um, paying disabled artists to do uh, original art for Crip Hop. So we were, we were going to have a visual, a visual art show in, um, in uh, a Comic Con. So... Yeah, so that that has to be pushed back. But we're, we're you know we're gonna push it back. We're still gonna do probably do it next year, you know. But you know every year in Oakland in August is on Joe Capers month. So you know what, what whatever happens this year, if you're around, just, you know, listen to Tony Tony Tony, listen to Embo because those are the
you know, growing up black and disabled back then, you know, it's it's totally different than now. You know, because now you have, you know, black, you have um, you know, disability studies. You have, you know, disability rights. You know, you have disability arts. Growing, but growing up back in the eighties and seventies, there was you know very little, and being black and disabled. It is almost nothing. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I I have one story I can tell you that um, me and two other black disabled um, boys at the time, we went upstairs to our bedroom, to my bedroom, and wrote letters to a lot of black leaders because we didn't see anything that looked like us on TV. And it's, now, this is before... Computers, so we had to write those letters. We wrote to the, you know, the Urban League and Jesse Jackson and NWACP, and you know, we we got porn letters saying, "Oh, there's nothing out there," and this was like 1980. Mm. So you know, going from that to today, you know, I think I think that that letter writing campaign. So this activism, you know, this uh, thinking about change, like, okay, I don't, we don't see ourselves, so, you know, we've got to change that. And so looking at some of the folks that you might be able to pull in as allies to help you, you know, amplify your voices, you know, that, that's great. It goes, like, way back. It's just a part of your DNA, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, we... You know, I grew up with parents that were activists, so I I had I, I had to be an activist. I I had no choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in closing, do you want to give a shout out to um anyone in particular, like your mom or any other folks, um, you know, who um who inspired and encouraged you, you know, um in your in your life around you know, sort of, um, you know, being able to amplify these particular um, voices that you represent, you know, the constituency that you represent, and to keep on being creative and, and doing this work, um, which brings joy, you know, to everyone, but it also um, is a change-making uh, situation as well. Yeah, thank you, Wanda. You know, I, I just want to say that um, Crip Hop Laws are one of our founders. Um, Rod Noyce Temple is now our ancestor. He passed away a couple of days ago. So I want to give a shout-out to, um, you know, his and his family. You know, he was one of the co-founders of Crip Hop Nation. So I want to give a shout-out to... You know, the Temple Dynasty in New York and Brooklyn. You know, of course, you know, shout out to my sister in Connecticut. You know, my sister has to work. You know, she works at FedEx. So I'm really, you know, on her to be really careful, you know. Mm -hmm. So shout out to her, you know, and 
Yeah, and shout out to you on the, you know, keep on doing your work. And, yeah. Oh, well, well, thank you, Leroy. And, and again, uh, give the uh, give your Facebook site so people can um, go register for the event today at 4 p.m. California time. Um, and and then also um, the um, the other program on on May 16th. Yeah, so the Facebook um, event page, you can just go on Facebook and type in, you know, Disability Justice, COVID-19. You can get the event page on Facebook, and that starts, you know, the the um, the conference starts at 4 o'clock California time. So get the link, you know, register for that, and that's today. And the Crip Hop concert, um, you can go to CripHopNation.com and go to the blog page. We have a press release. And I want to say, Wanda, you're the first person to have us on the show talking <laughs> about it. So thank you. Oh. I, I just... I, oh. I, 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 I don't understand why it's so hard to get, you know, media for for black disabled events. I just don't understand it. But, you know, thank you. So, yeah, go to oh. com with a K and go to the press um, press section and you'll see the face, you'll see the um, press release of the event on on May 16th. Okay, super. And um, I don't know if you sent me anything because I didn't see it. Did you send me any music? Yeah, yeah, they did. You did? Uh, okay, yeah. all right. So I'll play. I'll play it um, at the close of the show, and yes. uh, and I'll play it. And I'll play it next week too. And I'm looking forward to um, to coming uh, to the event today um, at at four. Should be really really exciting um, to meet you know, the various artists and activists that are are doing such good work, you know, during this really um, hard time, you know, for a lot of families. And, uh, yeah, we're sending positive energy, you know, to everyone, particularly those who have to work um, now. Yeah. And um, like your sister, um, you know, bringing us those packages. And, you know, you think about, wow, you know, what if what if everybody just really stayed home, right? Like, okay, I'm going to use my I'm gonna use my sick leave. I don't have to put myself in this danger. You know, people at the grocery stores, people that are, you know, in the warehouses, you know, getting sick. Like, just, you know, like if they could, just think about how this nation would just stop. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that might be a good thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I, I, you know, I've been saying it online that, you know, I'm not going to die for a paycheck. I'm just not going to mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Don't die. You know, I'm not going to die for a paycheck. And then uh, my next guest, um, who is um, joining us from um, New Orleans, um, I'm going to bring her into the studio. Uh, Dr. Uh, Camelia Moses uh, Okpodu, she, uh, um, one of her colleagues, you know, says that, you know, you follow the data, uh, not the date. (laughs) So anyway. Amen to that. (laughs) I was listening in. It's very good. Um, I didn't catch your guest 
name, but I really enjoyed what he at the end what I heard. Um, I have a daughter who is also. Hi, Doctor Mr. Moore. I'm Kenya. Hello, how are you doing? Yes, I have a daughter who's actually disabled, and um, she was talking to me this morning. She did a radio interview. She's been, she she does music. She's in Norfolk, Virginia. Oh yeah. So I got yeah I got to get I got to get their this information. Uh, so after this, I'll make sure Wanda and I definitely I get your your page because at four o'clock, we, um, California time, Pacific yeah. time, we can we can tune into what you guys are doing. Um, so encouraging to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Super. She might be able to be on your next your next um at your next concert. Uh, Leroy, that'd be hot. <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah. 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 That would be really and I want to cool. let folks. Yeah, I want to let people know also that that I have the poster um, for both of these uh, events uh, and Wanda's picks uh, for May to the 2020. Uh, so you can go there as well. Um, to to find out more about about these two events, and um, and I will play uh, play uh, some of your music, uh, Leroy, um, at the end of the program. But uh, thank you so the, much. The the, hmm? the the music is, is Rod Denoy's Temple. It's the song that he okay. made, and, and and I wrote the lyrics from. So yeah. Okay. Nice. Nice. Okay. Super. Super. Okay. Take care. <laughs> okay. You too, Leroy. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Peace and blessings. Yeah, so I don't know if people remember our wonderful conversations. Um, was that last year? Yeah, yeah, it was last year. We were oh talking God. about the slave rebellion reenactment. It's like, yeah. oh, we need to be marching now. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with a safe distance in our mass. Well, I'm actually yeah. going to go march today. I'm going to march today in honor of the, um, I'm going to try to jog a little bit um, in honor of a young man who was jogging through his community. And oh, was, yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I can't even talk about it, Wanda. It, 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 I'm, I don't want to cry, but it makes me, mm-hmm. I, it, it just gets me. I can't imagine. Um, mm-hmm. and, we, and you know our topic that you and I want to talk about today, you know that just brings it even more because I'm so worried about his mom. You know, mm-hmm. um, this whole it's just so messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I I got the information and I posted it um, in our um, Maafa um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area page on Facebook because I was just like, whoa, he was just jogging. And all these white people started chasing him, and he didn't know what was going on. And then, and then he turn, he would turn, and then they would follow him, and they all got their rifles and their guns, and then they just unloaded their weapons on him. And then there was nothing, like no prosecution, because this guy um, was um, was he a policeman? Yeah. See, without the video, this is why videography is so important. You know, even mm-hmm. though we have it. Even though we have videography, it doesn't always help us, as you know, um, mm-hmm. of the many uh, cases that have been um, uh, recorded and still outcomes. But at least I really think in the annals of history, people will go back and look and see how barbaric we were. Sometimes mm-hmm. retrospectors. Well, not we. Like not we. I'm not going to own that. Like, they are. We as humans. Yeah. I'm not meaning we as African Americans in particular. I'm talking about we as people. The human human, species, as a yeah. human race, yeah, the human species, mm-hmm. you 
I will I will withdraw what I just said, but you under, I think you understand the context of what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Um, oh totally. Because I don't yeah. understand yeah how we don't get it now. You know. Mm-hmm. But that's because we haven't taught us our, our own history. See, because mm-hmm. if you take a look at American history and understand how barbaric what slavery really entailed, and it was not a cruise ship uh, on the in the Middle Passage, you know, that took months of people being mm-hmm. chained together in the hull of a boat, of a ship. It's our reductionist remembrance is why we can't get our, why some people think it's okay. You know, the post, did you see the post? They said two God-fearing men um, mm-hmm. shot this guy because they thought he was a burglar. Yeah, like look at look at the um, you know the the uh, the modified God fearing men, not yeah. killers, <laughs> right? Because they were killers. <laughs> not so that's how you murder. frame it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. and then and then the way so, that you know the person who is he was killed is is criminalized, but they couldn't do that with this young man. I don't care if he was like, the biggest. I don't know what the main street is where you are. I don't. The main street here where I am in New Orleans, we have Cain, uh, Canal Street. Everybody knows where that is, right? Oh, I don't yes. care mm-hmm. if he was the biggest troublemaker on Canal Street. The decision to be judge, jury, and executioner was not there. The, I just mm-hmm. don't. I mean, and I can understand him grabbing the gun because he was probably afraid. I mean, you. Mm-hmm. Can, it, I can't even talk about it, Wanda. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. imagine that's somebody's baby. Right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about yes, he is somebody's baby. Mother's Day. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway. Right, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for lifting up his his uh, story. And um, and I'll, I'll get his name so we can call him by name. And his mother, who no longer has yeah. her baby, you know, her son, he's gone. And he was just in his, his early 20s. And all, and he yeah, likes, you know, he, um, like, um, he likes staying in fit. Hmm? I think his first name was what Ahmad or Ahmad. It, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm I'm just not saying it right. And uh, Arbery, A R B E R Y. Yeah, Ahmad. Okay. Arbery. okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just yeah. It, yeah. I'm crying. I don't know if you can hear it, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, too much. It's just too too much. Um, right. I worry about my students yeah. here, Xavier. When they, when they, when I would tell them, like you know, you guys don't. Um, if somebody stops you, if it's the police, you know how to be- behave. Don't, you know, live live another day. Now, ain't that crazy? Um, mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Uh, you can't. I felt that my students would be targeted because they were. Um, when I lived in Norfolk, in particular, because they were um, young college age urban kids wearing, you know, their gear, being themselves, um, and go downtown and um, come back and tell me that the police stopped them. Like, for what? What were y'all doing? You know, um, no, we were just walking. You know, like you, you can't walk in the city of Norfolk. <laughs> that was early mm-hmm. when I first moved there, like in the early 2009 or so. Um, they've gotten better. They got, they got, they had a chief that did some better work. There's a lot of work that we all have to do, but part of it is is that people don't see by the grace of God. They don't look at the other person as if they're, you know, deserving of their respect. And we have to get we have to get past this somehow. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, as mothers, we I think mothers are critical in this 
in this space where we are right now. Because had maybe their mother, the two gentlemen, father and son, but maybe it's the the father's mom and the his wife that had taught the son respect of life, maybe they wouldn't have uh, they would have waited for the police to come and not feel that they had to be vigilantes for property. They killed somebody over stuff. Stuff is mm-hmm. more important now than people. Well, it's always been more important. That was, you know, I mean, you know, if you if you consider black people people, right? And we, we, you know, when when the uh, <laughs> when the Constitution was drafted, you know, we weren't we weren't noted as people. We, we were property that could be we could be counted, you know, on on the census so that people could get more resources, um, but mm-hmm. just a fraction, not not a whole person, and and right. then. Yeah, so the commodification of black bodies has not ceased, um, even in a pandemic, right? People people are taking uh, opportunities now to take the law into their own hands, similar to what happened, you know, during Katrina, um, you know, people picking up arms, you know, arming themselves and, and, yeah, that and hunting, came literally through, hunting. Um, that, mm-hmm. that came through, that, that case, one of the cases that happened, um, I moved here in 2018 and at the end of that, I think it was the beginning of uh, 2019, that case where the gentleman in Jefferson Parish, Parish shot the mm-hmm. uh, motorist, I think it was. Um, well, anyway, I know that, that they, they, were, they actually finally had a sentencing for that. Um, mm-hmm. I, but what I'm saying, Wanda, is why aren't moms teaching children the safety? You know, we, we, we yelled that, oh, they took, they took Christ out of school. Okay, now they homeschool with you. If you want Christ back into the educational system, infuse it in what you're doing now when you're teaching your children at home. Mm-hmm. You're not. You don't have basic love or decency. And love, and, and I'm talking about a spiritual love, and it got nothing to do with Christianity or any other religion. It just has to do with being human and knowing that right. um, and being, relating to others as, as, as Ubuntu. So here at, you know, I know I've told you this before, but here at Xavier, I do radical hospitality and Ubuntu. Radical mm-hmm. hospitality means that I love you with a fervent love, a, a charity, that I, an Ubuntu, you are because I am, and I am because you are. So the un- understanding that we are our brother's keepers, and I keep saying, like, you know, if we could just get that concept through the populace here, maybe our numbers would drop with this coronavirus stuff, and we would be able to move out using practices that are best practices, like wearing our face mask and standing uh, um, distance from um uh, our nearest neighbor, so that we don't um, we don't hinder them from prospering and spreading our germs. If we can get to mm-hmm. that, you know, we we might have an opportunity. But every day, one the beginning of this, I I lost two to three friends. By the end of March, I figured up I had lost over a hundred friends and colleagues, and twelve people that I knew directly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this this is this is. This is unreal. This is so real. I feel like I'm sitting outside myself watching this whole thing, you know. But um, mm. I know we want to talk about a mother's love, so I because I, 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 I have to uh, uh, go to a meeting at 12.15, so I, I don't want to, you know, I, I may have gotten this off topic, and I apologize, but this, this raw emotion. No, 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 it's all good. I told you we were going to just have a conversation. So, oh, good, um, so let me let me let me let me finish introducing you, um, uh, because you know you're a scientist. Um, so so you you have a more of a you have a closer relationship to 
bacteria and uh, viruses and viral infections and how germs spread than, you know, lay people. Um, and, and you also, you're, you know, you're publishing, you mentioned to me the other day that you just, um, you wrote, just wrote, finished an article. And so you're, um, uh, you're Professor of Biology and Dean of Arts and Sciences at Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans, Louisiana. And you, uh, you were Professor um, 2003 to 2018, a former chair of biology uh, at Norfolk State University. You were just mentioning, you know, that that you were where um, your daughter is. Your daughter in Norfolk? No, she had her. She had. She was her undergraduate there, but she went to Howard and got her doctorate. My oldest daughter. Okay, so so does she live? Does she live in um, DC? She doesn't live in there. Yeah, in the DC oh. region. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And um, 2007 to 2008, uh, you were an American Council of Educators, Education Fellows. Um, you were the second director of the DIA uh, Designated Intelligence Community Center for Academic Excellence at Norfolk State University. And that in itself is a story that people can go back through the archives and look you up and listen to. But also you can um, you can uh, go in. You, there's a wiki on uh, Dr. Um, Oak Podu, <laughs> that you can read yeah. as well, because that's where I pulled this from. Um, so really yeah, so you know why there's a wiki. But one, let me tell you the reason why there's a wiki because I'm in all your textbooks in California, California and Texas. I'm in the Science to Children's case. I think it's fifth grade textbook from one of the publishers. They did an article on me about my research on the Emancipation Oak. So I was in the textbook. So that's why I had to have the Wikipedia page because students would call me and ask me for. Information about me because <laughs> they, they had in the book is told you to go write a mm-hmm. report. So that's how that got there. Well, that's great. That's excellent. Yeah. So tell us about. Um, uh, you can come to it whichever way you like. Um, you could talk about. Um, you know the black mother, your mother, your being a mother. Um, we could talk a little bit. Uh, bring people up to date on what's happening in New Orleans. And Louisiana around around the virus and how people are keeping safe. Um, that's a lot of people to to lose. You know, 100 um, plus uh, people that you actually know. It's not like random yeah. numbers. Well, the like I I, I I know these people. Mm-hmm. Right, and I kept saying to people, you know, and I don't want to get really into that wonder because there is a task force the governor put together, a task force with leaders from Xavier. Our president, our, our dean for the College of Pharmacy, because, you know, medication is also going to be critical if we're ever going to open up. Um, it's going, it probably will take us a while just because how the immune system works in order for us to get antibody to, this, um, to the virus. So we also have to take uh, more than one approach, you know, as a poor soldier that will only have one way out of a, of a situation. Mm-hmm. So that's my Army background um, you have to scope out and make sure that you have more than one way. So we're also looking at pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals as well. What are some things that naturally happen um, that we can use to help us in, with this? So I really don't want to talk about that because um, I'm not on that task force. So I don't want to be – and I am um, – you said I'm from Xavier. I'm the dean for the College of Arts and Science. My degrees are in, in biochemistry and plant physiology and biochemistry. So, yes, these interesting things I will say about this virus is that these type of viruses 
we know I know a lot about them because they affect plants. They're a single-stranded um, nucleic acid type uh, virus, and we've been studying. I've been studying them, uh, how they are able to get into the plant. I studied that in graduate school, and so. Um, but I don't really want to talk about that. I mean, I have my own opinion so that I can come back and talk to you as Camellia. But right now, mm-hmm. since I have announced that I'm the dean at Xavier, I would like to keep along the lines that we talked about black motherhood and, and, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the things that I see that are very important for us mothers. And I, I mention this because in uh, 2018, my daughter and I, the one we talked about, my oldest daughter, Camellia has a PhD in biophysics from Howard. Um, and so we talked. We wrote an article about breastfeeding because she's into a maternal. Um, she she did a uh, women's health, so she does. Um, mm-hmm. She has a minor physiology and biophysics. Mm-hmm. I think it's her actual degree. But we wrote a case study about overhydration when you work, when you make a, a formula, and we got into this whole conversation about you know um, how. Uh, formula com- companies have come in over time and convinced people in the early 70s and um, late 60s, early 70s that you shouldn't that you shouldn't um, breastfeed. So we do we do a case study on that. Uh, her name is Samelia, and I'm Camelia, and we do a case oh. study on it <laughs> and look at aspects <laughs> uh, of bottle formula and how uh, making a decision to understand critical for babies, um, critical care. Uh, so you can Google our last name and you can find that, or I'll send it to you if you want to put it on your page if people are interested okay, in that. Sure. Mm-hmm, yeah, when you asked me this, I started thinking, I was like, well, what, how would you define a mom? Because, you know, uh, so I looked it up and, you know, moms are uh, one of my funny definitions, persons who um, do all the work for no money, um, and have these little um, crumb snatches who are always thinking you were a millionaire. <laughs> so my children always <laughs> thought that I was like an ATM. <laughs> so that's my one definition. Then I thought mother. So one day I know you know my mom was sick. Well, I'm not cleaning sickness. My mom right now um, survived. She's a survivor. She had an aneurysm to rupture December 15, 2018. And I drove from Louisiana um, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, to Wilmington, North Carolina, at record speed. I think I got there in like 12 hours, um, mm-hmm. and um, was just so pumped on adrenaline that I didn't know. I didn't know when I got to the hospital if I would see my mom again. But God is faithful. My mom never lost consciousness, and she's home, um, rehabilita- being rehabilitated by my younger sister. I want to shout her out, Madeline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What an angel! She always gets mad with me, but uh, and my oldest sister, Linda, who who are both moms, who if not for their efforts, our mother would not be here with us. Um, mm-hmm. I worry about the COVID patients in this aspect that sometimes you need an advocate in the hospital with you when you're sick, so right. that they can tell them like you know you did, her fluids ran out, or I noticed that her her monitor, you know, and they, and people mm-hmm. right now don't have that. So um, my sister, my older sister, stayed with my mom, stayed with our mom and made sure that mom got the right treatment. So shout out to Linda. Um, And then my younger sister, Madeline, we call her Lisa. Um, She has been the caregiver. Um, And normally I would be able to go home and help her, 
you know, during the time. But right now we're sheltering in place in New Orleans and I can't leave. So I um, wanted to be home to see my mom for Mother's Day. I'm still trying to figure out how I can do this. <laughs> but we have our graduation here at Xavier, a virtual graduation on May 23rd. And so there's no way I can leave. I can't take the risk of not being able to get online. And I'm from the country, if you haven't, if you haven't checked out my accent. <laughs> so I don't want to take the risk of not being able to do my job. But, uh, yeah, my, I have three daughters. I don't know if I said that or not. Um, Samelia is the oldest, and she's also a mom now. So actually watching her be a mom is kind of fascinating because I get to see myself in what she does, but I also get to see my mom. So it's like, my goodness, this this is trickle down three generations. So my mom was big into decision making. She she didn't play with you. Like here's your choices, and you can make the choice you want. But whatever choice you make, you living with. So mm-hmm. I learned that early. <laughs> so one time I decided we were going somewhere, and I decided to put everything in my suitcase. And they were like telling me that. When I got there, I had to carry my own suitcase. I, I learned. I wasn't, that didn't take mm. long. Like, don't take more than you can carry. Because so, right. somebody else is not going to be responsible for your load. And I think that's a life, le- life lesson that I've carried out through all my adult life. Um, but I found the definition of mother as someone unconditionally, the maker and keeper of pre- precious memories, and a person uh, much loved and, genu- and greatly admired. And I like that definition because it reminds me of a story with Samelia when she was getting her doctorate at Howard. So uh, Samelia and I, you know, we collaborated on this last paper, but we also collaborated when she was a student at Norfolk State. She worked in my lab, and I was like, you know, I probably was harder on her, like, no, you need to get this, meet these deadlines because um, I need, we need this data, right? <laughs> so uh, get in the lab and do your – I don't need to hear excuses. Um, just because you mind, you know, you need to lead by example. Other people are going to be watching you because you are my daughter. So anyway, though, she's a hard worker. I didn't have to really tell her to do that. Um, but she, when she was finishing up, you know how you have your dissertation meeting and they, you have to defend your, your dissertation? So I drove from Norfolk to Howard to be a member of the audience to listen to her presentation. But when yeah. I got there, somebody said to me, oh, uh, I, I introduced myself as, um, I think I might, I said I may, may have said introduced myself as Dr. O'Cody, only because we were in a formal place. I don't know, normally introduce myself that way. So mm-hmm. I asked where the auditorium was, and he, the man said to, something to the effect, oh, so you're here, you're Samelia's mom, um, so are you here to uh, defend Samelia? Or something to, that was inappropriate. Uh, at the time, I was the director of the, intelligence, the DIA Intelligence Community Center. And I said, no, I'm here as Samelia's mom. You know, and I and I, mm-hmm. I say that because there's a book called Mothering Rhetoric, and they talk about mm-hmm. Michelle Obama as the mom in chief. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there as the mom in chief. I mean, the the doctor. Well, I was there as Samia's mother. And as I said to him, uh, if Samia's defense doesn't go well, then I would need to be here to pick up the pieces as her mother, not as her not as her collaborator or scientist, because that's mm-hmm. all I'm her mom, and that's my primary job. And I was um, telling some people the other day, some younger women in this group we have for women trying to encourage each other in this academic race that we we all find ourselves who have children. And I'm probably one of the older moms in this group. And I told them I remember how it was 
that um, I told a job one time. I didn't take this job. I told them my children came first because my children, I was all that my children had. And I wasn't going to, if I couldn't, um, if I got to be on the road 95% of the time, babysitter's not raising them. I didn't want that kind of life. And my mom got so upset with me. She was like, I was there with your children. You should have taken that money with big money. Yeah, so with that kind of money, people own you, right? Mm-hmm. And I would never get to go to any soccer games or any, be their coach. I coached my girls. Um, mm-hmm. I, to me, it's a little older, so I didn't get to do as many things as I would want, but I made sure that I could provide that she could have, you know, her own car um, uh, for the sacrifices we had to make because of the circumstances of being a single mom. Now, we didn't start out that way, but sometimes that's how life is. You have to roll with the punches. <laughs> so I uh, talked about how, you know, she had to make to help me in a sense um, because at the time I didn't want to move her from her high school, and I drove back from North Carolina to Virginia every day for two years until Samaria graduated high school so that she could be in one place. And um, I'm glad I did that because I think it made a difference for her educationally. It probably was hard, you know, having to be the big sister. But right now those three are so tight. Um, they listen, the, the, the two younger ones will listen to me before they listen to me. <laughs> so, but I like this idea of moms being, you know, the keepers of dreams and memories and I was thinking about my second daughter, Elizabeth, who has a degree in um, marine science, uh, not marine science, environmental um, studies. And um, so Samia and Elizabeth followed me kind of as scientists. So in seventh grade, Elizabeth came into my lab and did an experiment with me. She, she designed, which was really cool. She told me at, the, at her school she didn't want to just do those little silly projects. She wanted a real research project, so I gave her the data. And we, I gave her the background information on what I was doing, and I just needed to know a very simple question, what works best for isolating these cells I was working with. So she set up the conditions, and she was able to actually um, actually do a real scientific study that I, that I actually have as part of one of the abstracts that I submitted, and she's part of that. Mm-hmm. So the younger daughter, Corinne, doesn't want anything to do with science, although she's very good at physics. But she was like, no, I'm majoring in music. <laughs> and I was like, you can't. So she did international government and minored in music. And um, that's the one I was talking about that has a disability. Yeah. And she just ah. re- recently released a um, released an album that I will share mm-hmm. with you. And maybe she can talk nice. to Mr. Leroy and make a collaboration. Oh, and maybe I could have her on my show. Wow. Nice. Yes, I think that would be good. I have a thing that would mm-hmm. be good. She's such a sweetie. She's very, um, she's 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 a wise old lady. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. she was the kid at two at two years old. I was cleaning out their room, and she was about two and a half, three. Mm-hmm. I think she must have been three because we moved to a new house, and I separated the two girls. So Elizabeth and Corinne are eighteen months apart, so I put them in separate mm-hmm. rooms because I noticed that they, you know, they were up to they would be up to no good if I left them together. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they, they had this language. You would thought that they were twins. They had this mm-hmm. language that they probably still can do today that no one else knows what they're talking about. And they had these looks. And they would. Talk, mm-hmm. they, I found out when they got older, they were, Cynthia was their code word for me. My name was Cynthia. Oh. So when they were, you know, uh-huh. Cynthia's coming. And <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but Corinne is the child at about 
about three years old, I was cleaning up her room and I was giving her to throw up some stuff. She told me, no, don't throw that away. Those are my, that's my treasures. I said, your treasures? It was really like bottle cap top. This child collects mm-hmm. everything. I said, this is junk. She said, well, man's junk is another man's treasure. <laughs> You're three. Oh, okay. She's three? With the she said that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. She told me that at three, and I was like, okay, I'm not dealing with a normal three-year-old. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she, everything she could read, she, she she started reading really early. She was easy to teach to read, and she just picked it up, and she, she would read books. Like, every time we would go to the store, Corinne would ask for a new book. Now, that's what asking me for makeup. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather get her own makeup for her to steal my makeup, which is what she used to do. So I would buy her a lip gloss or whatever at that age because I think, you know, you need to, you know, you don't need to grow up too fast. But I understood I, my older sister is, my, my Elizabeth reminds me of my older sister. There's just some people who like makeup. <laughs> my older sister will not leave her house without her doing her face. So I, I understand that. That's a, a, self, a self-care and self-pride, and I think that's good. You know, um, I did a lot of pageants but and stage stuff, but, um, I mean, as long as I got some lipstick and some earrings, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> so, so to each his own, uh, I think it's part of their identity that makes them more endearing to me. But my younger, my, my middle daughter went to um, play sports. My, my ex-husband is a professional soccer player. So, Soccer was the number one thing they did their whole life. Like, you know, before they could walk, they had a soccer ball in the bed. He gave them that there. One of those little cushy soccer balls. He get he put that in every each each one of the cribs. Elizabeth's the one who played collegiate, uh, played in um sports in college. Uh, went to a community college in North Carolina on a on a scholarship, thanks to a very kind and generous coach named Coach Library. I will forever be in debt to that gentleman. He didn't know me. I put together her, her video showing how quick she was, and um, I wanted her to go to the community college because she was near my mom, but also because I wasn't – Corinne got sick. And when Corinne got sick, I took all the money I had saved for pretty much for college to pay for her surgery. She had to have two major surgeries. So without full scholarship, um, so Elizabeth got into very good schools. She's in good grades. But they weren't given very much scholarship, so I didn't want her to have a debt, a large debt when she came out. So I suggested she go two years to the community college, play soccer for them, and then transfer to a larger school um, that was there. And so that's what we did when she, when she got to the uh, UN, University of North Carolina school. Um, I told her that I didn't like the way that they were treating her and that I didn't want, she didn't have to play soccer, that I wanted her to concentrate on her. On her grades, I was afraid that they were going to let her, they were going to hurt her, and then you know, I, so I decided that you know with her to find something else to do. So she started doing bodybuilding, and um, she she's done really well in that. She's um, has been a fitness model. So I say all that mothering for me, wow. loving your children <laughs> unconditionally, allowing each one of them to express who they are, not putting your limitations on your children. Um, I see parents all the time, mostly moms, come in, and, and dads are usually, um, dads come too. And, but I see a lot of people come in and the moms do all the talking. And I'm like, this child's going to be lost when you leave them, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't know their own yeah. voice. And you need to teach them their own voice because at one point they're going to, you're not, if, if it goes in a natural progression of things, 
you're not going to be with them. So you need to learn to not be mom and chief by doing everything for them, but being their mm-hmm. coach, you know, coaching them. Um, let, let Be their sounding board. Now, it's hard for me, uh, Wanda, with my oldest daughter, and I feel bad that my oldest daughter, you know, my firstborn, I just she, I just want to go beat people up when people mess <laughs> You know, my instinct comes in. Uh, you know, I just want to, like, you know, uh, let me handle this. But I, I, I talked to myself, so don't do that. You know, she has to learn to advocate for herself. So when she was in mm-hmm. graduate school, I told her, I said, uh, she was a little girl, this, little, this girl in the daycare had, and I kept going to the daycare people and saying, you know, you really should talk to the other parent. This kid keeps picking on my kid and hurting my kid. They didn't do anything. So I'm a bad parent. So this is when I was being a bad mom. I told my daughter, she was about 18 months old, I said, Samelia, the next time that little girl comes up to you, I want you to grab her arm and just bite her. Mm-hmm. She's looking at me. <laughs> and because the girl was biting Samelia every day, every day, slapping her and doing whatever. And I come, my child's got a big red mark down the center of her face. I said, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway. I said, so Samia, the girl came, Samia bit her. And the, and the little girl, of course, cried. And so then I, I, that day when I picked her up, they were like, Miss um, Okoda, um, Samia bit the little girl today. I said, what? They, I said, well, they were like trying to question me as to why would Samia do that. I said, well, maybe she learned it from here. Because the little girl was biting her every day. So maybe that's why she thought you greet people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that's that's an example of being a bad mom. But uh, <laughs> but I I use that <laughs> I tell my daughter when she as an adult she had a faculty member who was giving her a hard time. I said, Amelia, you have my permission to bite him. And the two of us knew what I was talking about. <laughs> no one mm-hmm. else did. But sometimes as parents, as moms in particular, we have to teach our children to. Advocate. Don't start trouble, but don't sit around and be somebody a whooping boy. Um, stand up for yourself, especially as uh, females. And there's a book called A Feminist Mother. I was trying to get it, but I didn't, I didn't have time to download it. Um, but in other words, tell your teaching your daughter to be self sufficient and self advocating, I think are important mm-hmm. attributes that we, that um, that I find. And then the, uh, my youngest, as I told you, does music. Oh, before you give me, um, Camelia, um, I need, mm-hmm. I need to, um, I have another guest, and we're kind of running out of time. So I wanted to give you oh, an okay. opportunity no um, to give to give a shout out to um, some, you know, mothers that you really admire. Um, your grandmother, your great grandmother, you know, other women, historic mothers. Um, if you if you'd like to. Um, as a conclusion. Well, thank you for inviting me, Wanda, and I, I lost track of time, and I apologize for that, but I just want to say, first of all, shout out to you for putting this phenomenal program together. Um, and and I don't know if you have biological children or not, but mothering has nothing to do about biology. Mothering has to do about caring and making sure the next generation prospers and are able. I want to shout out, of course, my mom, Gloridia, uh, who um, who is a very sweet person. Uh, I wanted to say roses are red, violets are blue. Mom, I miss you, and I love you so much. Um, didn't have to run. Um, I want to shout out <laughs> all the mothers who are are, are here and are in this tough time, standing in this where you feel like you're by yourself. You're never alone. Hold on to your faith. 
um, hold on and know that God has heard, that he would never take you through stuff. Uh, but in the end, I sit back and I look at how I got over it, and I know it's through the love of other women who have helped me be those caregivers for my children. So one in particular, Dr. Arlene Macklin, who is a professor of physics, who was a mentor to my daughter, both at Norfolk State and Howard, who has also been my sponsor in making sure that I got to the next level. So greetings and shout out to her. She doesn't have any children of her own, but she's helped to stand in the gap for over 150 PhD, black PhDs in this country, and she should be recognized for that. Other than she's in the National Museum of History, uh, she should actually, um, excuse me, National Library of Congress, she should also be recognized for that. She was the first woman to get a PhD in physics from Howard University. So shout out to Dr. Macklin. And shout out to all those women who have been the wind, the wind underneath my uh, my wings, Dr. Angela Odom-Halston, who's the pediatrician who helped me, helped my children. And I was, we transitioned from Blacksburg, Virginia, to North, uh, Hampton, Virginia. Still good friends, my Sora. And I want to just wish all mothers, whether you are or all people who function in this aspect of being a mother, because sometimes men have to mother because there's you know loss of a spouse or whatever. So I just love you guys. I hope you have a wonderful day of, of, of recognized for you. And I also want to shout out those people who desire children who don't have children, or those who have have um, lost their children or child during this awful time. I want to remember you, lift you up and ask God to give you extra ordinary strength. So thank you, Wanda. Oh, Let's thank talk you, again. Helen. What a wonderful what a wonderful shout out, like a prayer. Nice. <laughs> thank you. Be blessed. You too. You take a good have a good rest of the day and enjoy your run for our our, our young man who um thank who you. is who is running with you. Ahmad Avery. Mm-hmm. Yes. We yeah, Ahmad Avery, right. Mhm. And there's there's right. a, um, a petition on change.org that I'll post as well so people can sign it to support okay. the family. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Well, it's always good to talk to you. Peace and blessings. Thank you.
That was Desert Rose um, uh, performing Ubuntu, and and that's uh, Ubuntu for uh, Camilla Moses uh, Okpodu because she mentioned that um, that that is her philosophy. So um, so anyway, um, <laughs> um, oh, there's my next guest, oh, my my special guest. Oh my goodness. Oh, good morning, Sister Sadie. How are you? Well, good morning. I'm so happy to have you join us to talk about uh, the black mother and about your mother and mothering and giving a shout-out to other other mothers that, that you honor um, and that you, um, you know, you, you're, you're, um, you know, admire. Um, I want to... Um, Read your bio, Jackie. Just send it to me so it's perfect timing, if you don't mind. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so Mrs. Uh, Sadie Williams was born to a family with business minds and a love of God. She owned a she owned a pre-owned clothing store and wrote about her love of God in the book Black Women Stirring the Water. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's a really wonderful chapter in that great book. Uh, Sadie Williams is a world traveler. She's visited Africa five times um, and every continent. She is a mother of two biological children. However, she is Mama Sadie to many, many others, including the person on this interview, me, Wanda. So thank you so much for joining us to talk about your life and, and about your mother and yeah. So first question I wanted to ask if you could just maybe give us a little background. Where were you born and who are your parents and, and your siblings? I was born in Houston, Texas, to a uh, family. My mother was Katie Lucas Carter. My father was Logan Field Carter, and Logan was a successful entrepreneur, and we lived very well in Texas. As I said, I grew up, and sometimes I'm sorry to say that I never, never knew what the Depression was. was. I don't know anything at all about the Depression. So I grew up in a very successful home, although my mother never worked. My mother stayed home and raised her two children, I have a sister that's two years and ten days older than I am, so we were raised at home by a homemaker, and uh, we went to camp up in the summer, and we visited both grandparents, my mother's side and my father's side, so all of our summers were spent away from home, which I often regretted because I wanted to stay home with my schoolmates and classmates. But And uh, I don't know what else I can say except I had a very successful childhood and a very successful marriage. And as far as mothering, I think mothers should devote a lot of time to their children and show great Great love, because love is the answer, and all mothers should show their children and let the children know without a doubt that they are loved. And 
And today, education is very important. And if it requires the entire family to see that a child and their family is educated, I think the family should come together and make sure that the children are educated. Mm-hmm. What else do I need to say? <laughs> um, well, you are 96 now? 96 years old and in very, very good health. Mm-hmm. I exercise yeah. days a week. I do strength training, and I ride three miles on the stationary bike, and I do step uh, three Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays without without a doubt, because I know if I ever stop, I'll go downhill. And I'm very, very mindful about falling, because I know even though I'm strong, I'm fragile, and I cannot afford to fall. So I'm very mindful not to fall at 96. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And um, and you're a cancer survivor, and um, and you've had two really wonderful marriages, right? Absolutely, and the, uh, two beautiful marriages. And my last marriage was lasted 50 years before... Cleophas Williams passed. We were married 50 years, and we traveled. I think in my bio it said we went to, and we did, we prepared every continent except the Antarctic and Africa five times. So my husband was retired 30 years, and during those years we traveled and traveled and traveled. Right, yeah, and a, and a lot of the travel you did was um I think with your church community, right, some of it? Well, actually, I, we went to the World Methodist Conference every four years because that's when it convenes. And we mm-hmm. also went to Union, some of my travels with the Union, the Longshore and International Longshoremen's Union, and all mm-hmm. the rest on our own. So, yes, those two provided us with, because we had to pay our own way, but we went as representatives of International Longshoremen and as the World Methodist Conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because you, um, you've been a member of uh, Downs Memorial Church for a very long time, right? I've been a member of Downs now for 50 years. The whole time I was married, well, not the whole time. I would say yes, the whole time I was married to Cleophas because I was raised an Episcopalian, and I Cleophas went with me for one year to the Episcopal Church, and uh, the priest was made into a canon, and he didn't like the new priest, so I came to his church, which is Downs United Methodist Church, where I am still and very happy there. And I tell Mm -hmm. you one thing, as I talk about teaching love to children and making sure they know their love, that is because God is love. So if you teach love and they know love, they will be godly because mm-hmm. they're following in the footsteps of what uh, God wants us to do. Love one mm-hmm. another. Right, yeah. And so um, before you married um, uh, Brother Cleophas, how, how long were you married to um, your previous husband? Because the two men knew each other, right? They were friends? Yes. So they, That's they a really both- great story. Yeah, they both worked on the waterfront together, and that was mm-hmm. my first marriage, which was my children's given father. Uh, 
they both were longshoremen, and Cleophas spoke at his funeral when he passed. And he did such a good job until when the funeral was over. <laughs> and I have to tell this because it's funny. Uh, and Cliff was standing outside talking to some other longshoremen. I asked the driver of the car as we were on our way to the cemetery to stop the car and go get me that man's name and address. And when he brought back, it was Cleophas Williams. And I wanted to send Cleophas a thank you card for doing such a good job of speaking at my husband's funeral. And that's mm-hmm. how Cleophas and I met and became husband and wife for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And what was um, what was your um, your husband um, at that time before you um, met Brother Cleophas? What was his name? John Dawson Jones. We called him J. D. Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us some stories about you know having um, you know uh, I know at the time that. Um, when you were a girl, and and you know, I don't know, I don't know what year. If you were '96, what year you were born? But um, but you've lived so long. I was born in 1924. Okay, so that's around. So Malcolm X was when, was your peer, right? Because uh, he was born in the 1920s as well. So he was. You all were in the world at the same time. And and so um, you mentioned how your father, you know, was a businessman, and and you know, even though you know the depression was hitting a lot of communities really hard, that you all didn't have any any wants or anything like that. I was wondering if you could tell us a story about you know about growing up and your your dad and the restaurant and just what, what was it like in Houston, Texas, um, when you were a girl? Houston, Texas is a very progressive. A city, uh, mm-hmm. black people did everything. We had our own grocery stores in our communities, our own doctors, our own clothing stores, our own gasoline stations. We were in our own laundries, everything. And even today it breaks my heart to see, to not see black people owning businesses because I came from a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather was an entrepreneur, and my father and my uncle, I don't know I don't know any other life except successful entrepreneurs. My grandfather made bricks and baked them and built some of the bricks at Purview University was made by my grandfather, and the bricks in Hempstead, Texas, where my grandparents lived, uh, with the city halls and some of the buildings in Hempstead, Texas. So he was a successful entrepreneur. My father owned the only restaurant that all longshoremen's had to eat in because the waterfront was too far from town that the uh, workers could go into town for lunch. So they were forced to eat in my father's restaurant. And I've been supported by the longshoremen's my whole entire 96 years because of my Mm -hmm. father. And then, of course, when I married, I encouraged my first husband to become a longshoreman, which he did. And uh, that's where where he and Cleophas worked together. And not knowing that Cleophas would become my husband, 
because uh, he spoke at my husband's funeral. So I have been supported by the Longshoremen's my entire life. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing how, you know, your father's, you know, connection to um, to long, you know, to the waterfront and to longshoremen, and then, and and you were in Texas, and then you come to California, and you know, the circle continues. That's really, really interesting. That's that's a, I think it's phenomenal. <laughs> Mhm. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. And and so when you talk about, you know, your mom and um and you talk about your grandparents, you know, your grandfathers, I was wondering about your grandmothers, um, you know, sort of, you know, some of the folk wisdom of of, you know, those particular women that you you carry. Um, you you know, you mentioned the love and and so love is a demonstrative um word as well like it's it's a verb um <laughs> and so um it just sounds like you know that you know just love was just a part of cuz you're a really loving person too but love was just a part of you know sort of the community and your family and the way you related to one another I wonder if you could tell us you know stories of of the of the women and and their work you know at you know raising the children and you know sort of you know, doing work in the community. I wonder if you could tell us some more stories about your mom and your grandmother and other other women in your life when you were coming up. I think that is what has happened with the demise and the sadness of our children today. The women are forced to go to work because everything is so expensive. It takes both both mother and father to work. But when the women left the house, the children went astray. We, that's mm. why our youngsters today, I do believe, are in such trouble and die need for guidance because they need a mother at home to teach them and guide them. And there's so many things that children have to be taught. I don't mean need to be taught. They have to be taught how to grow up and how to do things and how to be decent citizens, and the only way they're going to get it is from the home when they are babies and taught and been surrounded by that kind of information all of their lives. And today there's no one home teaching the children. They're leaving it entirely up to the schools, and the schools are teaching or should be teaching academical things, not not just the natural things of becoming and being decent citizens. So the the kids and the world has gone astray because the women, mothers are not home teaching. Mothers are most important. You must remember it's from the mother that everybody is created. And the mothers should continue to see that the children are trained properly. It is just sad so much that the people do not know uh, how to do things and what is important in life, and know the love. But mothers are the most important in the human race, I do believe. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Do you um do you have any recall any stories um uh, about you know you and your sister and your mother that you could share with us? Well, the any, stories any I can stories? tell is that even today, and I have five generations. I mean five loving 
generations. We are a close, close knit family. We're just loving all the time. We get together. I know we all twenty one of us get together once a year and that's at Christmas time. Uh we'll go from state to state wherever the kids are, but we come together and we never play cards or do we sit around in a big circle and we all talk about the same thing and we talk about things that will improve the lives of one another and we just we and this and there's no drinking among us well and it's just it's just loving i i just thank god for my family and i wish there were more and more and i hear stories about families who's not speaking to one another i just don't understand that kind of thing because families should love first thing god is the most important thing in our lives and the second thing in our lives are families and beyond that, the rest of my hang-ons, but even so, they, they can be good hang-ons. But remember, mm-hmm. God first, family second, and nothing but love. And it's amazing how we we get together all the time. But at least we know once a year, 21 of us are going to be together. But we celebrate mm-hmm. all the holidays together, whoever like there's at least 19 here in my family. And mm-hmm. we just love, I'll just say love is the answer. And the reason love is the answer, because God is love. And right. without love, you're not being godly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned to me, you know, since um, you're not able to get out presently because of, you know, the stay at home and you're, you know, in that vulnerable community um, category, you uh, mentioned that your granddaughter, I think it was Dana, um, shows you how to um, to do um, a virtual connection so that you all could have a meal together, Well, I your tell family. You, I'm pretty good with the cell phone and with texting and Facebook at 96, but I don't know. There's an awful lot I don't know. So, Easter Sunday at 6 o'clock, my family was going to have dinner together because of the shutdown. We had not been able to come together and enjoy one another. So, yes, it was Dana that that worked with me for about 45 minutes because she was going to make sure that I was a part of having dinner with the rest of the family at 6 o'clock on Easter Sunday. And it was fabulous. We could see one another. We all knew what one another was eating. We could see one another putting the forks in their mouths and talking and communicating. So, yes, uh, Easter Sunday at 6, and I, yesterday my great-granddaughter called Aaliyah called me and had me looking at her and her grandmother, which is my daughter, Jackie, and mm-hmm. we had a beautiful visit Oh, it's just wonderful. I love technology, uh, and Mm -hmm. I do it fairly well. I wish I was better, but I do text and I Facebook and I do whatever's necessary that I can do. But we had a beautiful visit yesterday with my great-granddaughter, Aaliyah. 
Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. And and I remember, um, I think it was last year that I came to um, a uh, your your um, your painting. Um, you had like a yeah. You had a show. Um, where where you know you were um had all of your new you had painting I didn't know you were a painter <laughs> you had paintings me, up and you had a no, quilt no, not you had an art painting. show one that's not paintings mm-hmm. it's drawing oh uh, oh it's I drawing never, okay right I, okay there's a difference I never drew yes. sick people when Jackie my two children Jackie and Dan was growing up like some parents would do stick people I never drew stick people and at ninety three I joined uh, art class here at the facility where I live, and I must say it's a wonderful facility because they offer so much. And I started drawing with this wonderful instructor, and I was able to put on a, a art show. I showed ten of my drawings, and I tell you, if I have to say so myself, artist now. <laughs> I never <laughs> knew I could draw anything but I'm drawing mm-hmm. beautifully and I think uh anyway now I'm an artist. <laughs> yeah, well you already were an artist um and now we can see it um because of that wonderful work that you that you had these those stills were just so gorgeous. Um you had you had dogs, you had fruit, um other types of of um I had know, a violin that was my hardest piece to draw was a violin. Mm-hmm. I never knew it would be so difficult, but I'm enjoying drawing. Even now, while I'm shut in, I've done a few pieces, but mostly while I'm uh, shut in, I'm doing pictures because I have tubs of pictures. And when I leave this planet, I don't want any of my children to have to throw out the friends that they don't know because they'd have no need to keep those pictures. So as of today, I have mailed 64 pictures to people, and I'm doing it alphabetically. And I've only gone as far as the J's in my phone <laughs> files. So I have more to do. Yes, Wanda, you will receive some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and when you get to W. Yes, <laughs> when I get to the W's. But I don't mm-hmm. want these those pictures to be thrown out because my my survivors don't know who they are. So I'm working diligently to put mm-hmm. these pictures in their hands, and I'm getting so many thank yous from the 60. As of yesterday, I had mailed 63 pictures. Mm-hmm. So I'm busy. Right, right, yeah, busy. yeah. At yeah, you. Nine, at 96, I stay busy. Mhm. Right. That's really great. That's really great. Yeah. Um. You you mentioned about um. You know how how important mothers are and and I know um. Uh, I think the Honorable Elijah Muhammad would talk about how um, paradise you know lies at the at the feet of the mother, and um and you know you talked about the five generations and you know the twenty one of you all getting together, and um. And in this year, um, oh, I'm not sure if it was last month or the month before. No, actually, it was last month. I think. You know, um, your son Dan um, passed, and uh, I just wonder if you want to talk about Dan at all for our audience. You know, I will and, say, 
my son passed March 26th. March, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, doing doing the study, and in the last four days of Dan's life, he was not able to see any of his family, and we were not able to see him. That was the hardest, hardest thing for me. Anyway, I'll change that quickly because I'll go into tears. But Dan was a fantastic father. Dan's son, Javon's mother, died when Javon was 16 months old, and Dan raised Javon by himself. And he raised one of the most fantastic young men that you'd ever want to meet and a very successful young man. But anyway, Dan devoted, that's why I said so important. I use the word mother, which you and I know is the first teacher. But to any, any parent, and Dan had the responsibility of being the mother and the father for Javon, and he devoted his life to Javon and kept him very, very busy. He was champion swimmer. He played in the school band. He did trumpet in the marching band and the concert band. And today, Javon is a successful uh, person in the corporate world in Washington, D.C., and he's only 28 years old. But even so, parents, mothers, and parents are the most important thing in anybody's life. So it's all about our upbringing and the neglect or the care that we received as children, which makes us into the kind of person that we grow into mature adults and into old age. I give my parents the utmost respect for what my grandparents, my parents, and my parenting too, because I have, out of the five generations, all of them are just doing wonderful. All of my adult generations are college graduates because we make sure that that is a part of their life. When they graduate from high school, there's no other thing for them to do but go into college. No jobs, because once they start making money, they're not going to want to go to school. So you have to make sure that's important. But work while you're in college. But anyway, parenting is most important. And since Mother's Day is coming up, I will emphasize the importance of being a mother. It's a full-time job, but a very, very necessary job. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, I wanted to ask you if um, if there were any any stories um, in your in your family about. Um, ancestors that had experienced enslavement, and if so, um, you know what what stories do you recall? Uh, I recall my grandmother telling me, because my grandparents were not a part of slavery either. I don't believe, but mm-hmm. my grandmother used to tell us about a girl that was because you know the, the white men used black women as belly warmers, as they were called at that time. Because even if they have gifts, they will use a black woman to sleep with their gifts who came, but men that came without wives or didn't have wives. So we have a lot of, of mixed-race uh, children. And this little girl came to the fence or to the gate when some guests was coming, was visiting their master. And the, uh, the guests thought she was part of the white family. So from that after the the master saw that, 
he branded the little girl's face so oh. she would would not be recognized as part of his white family. And that story has always stuck with me because can you imagine a child being branded in the face so that, oh. that the white people would know that she belonged in the slave uh, part of the of the plantation. So that's mm-hmm. one story that stands out with me. But uh, my grandmother told me that, and how she knew about it was not anything that she herself witnessed, but she knew about it. And another mm-hmm. story <laughs> that I have to tell you, my father mm-hmm. was a man that didn't believe in women working, and the reason he did, he thought he too felt that the woman's place at home to take care of the house and raise the children. I will say this, we always ate dinner together. My father owned the restaurant, but he came home every day at the same time so we could all eat dinner together. And when we come home from school, Louise and I, I don't care if my mother had baked my favorite caramel cake. That cake could not be cut until my dad came home. And we all ate together, and that would be our dessert. But anyway, my father said that he went to court with a friend of his whose wife was working in a white family, with a white family, and the judge asked this black man, and this white man was going to be, was sleeping with this man's wife, this black man's wife. And uh, the judge told the man, the white judge told the black man that is is he is the the boss paying her to work? And of course the man said, sure. He said, well, if he's paying her, he is supporting her, and he should be able to go to bed with her. So my father, from that day on, never thought that a, a woman, or I'll even use the word the black woman, should work because mm-hmm. he thinks that the husband husband should be able to. But that judge said that white man had a right to go to bed with that man's black man's wife because he was paying her and supporting her. So those kind of stories, just, oh, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and it gives context to, to your father's, um, you know, decision to, to you know, provide for your mother, and that she wouldn't have to, um, you Work. know, to be at risk like that for um, uh, for abuse. You know, the woman didn't work for that family, for that man to sexually violate her. She was right. performing another type of job, and so he added that to the job description. And you know, the legal system didn't even protect her, you know, from such violation, right. which. Yeah, and it continues today, you know, with women being violated sexually um, by people that have, you know, more power than they do. That's a fact. Not that's literally, a, but but in that's society. Why I have, and, that's a fact. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's me too. It started because women are being violated repeatedly mm-hmm. on the jobs. Yes. 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 True. Yeah. Job in school, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it, if you know, if men, you know, don't respect, you know, the women then or the girls, um, right. 
then it's like, okay, well, if you want to move up in this position or if you want this kind of whatever, then you're going to have to, like, right. you know, trade yeah. trade sexual favors for, for this this position that I that I have the keys to, you know, I'm the gatekeeper of. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's very, that's when, very, very strong today. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And and when I met you, um, it was in the Nation of Islam over on uh, Fillmore and Gary, you know, Temple or Mosque 26, and and you were captain, uh, you know, Sadie uh, Williams and um, and Sister Anita Ali was your first lieutenant, and 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 this is you know we're like you you were in Texas, we're, we're so we're moving from Houston to San Francisco. And and you didn't just arrive in in San Francisco when I met you, but I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your um, I don't know if you were part of that migration and that migratory um, uh, move that people of African descent moved from the South to the West um, for different you know. Mm-hmm. I moved here to follow my sister because her husband came out to work in the shipyard. And when oh, okay. he, yeah, and see, so he was a part of that migration, and and I was because my sister and I were so very very close, and so when she came and wasn't long after I graduated from Hughes Business College in Houston, Texas, I came out, and of course I came out and I worked at Golden State Insurance at that time was a black. Very strong insurance company. That's why it breaks my heart today. I don't know of any strong black businesses. And I came out and worked at Golden State Insurance uh, Company. But uh, that's how I. That's why I came. And today I somewhat regret that I didn't stay in Houston and keep my father's restaurant going. But then that didn't happen, and it wasn't meant to be. But I know I. It would have been nice because it wouldn't have been a one-generation business. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, I came into the Nation of Islam because of the school. Jackie wanted her two children, Veronica and Dana, to come in, so I followed them. <laughs> Sounds like I'm a follower, but I'm really not. <laughs> but it. <laughs> Not by far, but even so, I followed Jackie and her two children into Islam, and I Mm. found it was most fantastic. I remember the first, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, message from uh, the imam at that time. Can't think Mm -hmm. of his name. But anyway, I liked Was it Minister Majid? Was it Minister Majid or John Muhammad? Not Muhammad, thank you. Okay, yes. I loved the way they were training the men, the FOI. Mm -hmm. And I was just so highly impressed. And then, of course, see, Jackie's two children, Veronica and Dana, were members of the school there, the Muhammad School. And Mm -hmm. I became, Jackie became the dean of girls, and I became the captain of the the MGT. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say I still admire Islam, although I don't completely follow because I'm now United Methodist. But uh, 
I loved the teaching at that time, what they did with the men. Of course, later I learned that most of those men truly, truly needed the teaching that they got into Islam. And I hope and I think I did contribute something to the MGT, which I taught them how to manage their homes, how to fold. I'd bring in the linen and taught them how to fold the corner, the contoured sheets. Oh, I, I hope I contributed a lot to the women at the, uh, and I also opened a school store. Well, anyway, I, I'm grateful for the years that I spent in the Nation of Islam, and I was absolutely uh, pleased with having an audience with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Cleophas was invited to his home because Cleophas was the black was the first black president of International Longshoremen in San Francisco, Local Ten, which is mm-hmm. a very strong union and they any of you know or don't know that union is uh, at Fishman's Wharf. If you ever go to Fishman's Wharf and go over one block to Bay Street, uh, you will see that Octagon Building and the Longshoremen's Union occupies that whole, whole block at Fishman's Wharf. And Cliffs was the first black president of that union. So as a result, he was invited. Uh, he and I was invited as an audience with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So I had a yeah. fruitful life in Islam and a very fruitful mm-hmm. life in my growing up and a very fruitful life as a senior. Anyway, I'm grateful to Almighty God for my blessings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you told me this great story about how your son, Dan, uh, who was in Chicago, I think at the time, how he, he set it up. And I think, and then eventually, you know, you, you mentioned that um, Jackie ended up moving there and working um, at the um, the school. And, That's yeah, right. so tell us that story. That and I think you got met by a limousine. It sounded, like, really okay, cool. So what happened when Dan, when my son knew that Cleos and I had been invited with the, to an audience with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Dan took a midnight plane out ahead of us because we would do leave that morning and went to Chicago and ended up at uh, Honorable Muhammad's home and told them that his mother and father was arriving at such and such a time the next morning. So he actually came in the limousine with the driver to pick us up. And from that <laughs> moment, Dan stayed in Chicago and became very, very active as a Muslim, and he was successful in Chicago. He ended up being the secretary of the mosque in Long Beach, secretary treasurer in Long Beach mm-hmm. when he came back to California. And Jackie joined her brother, and she and her two children in Chicago, and she uh, worked for Muhammad Speak. She was very, very well known at the Muhammad Speak uh, newspaper. And of course, I must tell you this real quickly. I chose Dan's first wife 
Bonita, who was a Muslim, who was also one of the sisters at the mosque in San Francisco, and I mm-hmm. fell in love with her, and I sent her to Chicago to meet Dan, and they <laughs> did, and they married, and they have a beautiful, very successful daughter, which was mm-hmm. Dan's first marriage to Bonita, who was a sister, and as I say, I sent her to Chicago to meet Dan and. They did marry. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I met I met your granddaughter um uh when she was visiting Bonita who is um yeah, she was uh I think she was finishing up. Um uh, is she is published she a physician? She published a book and I think you probably came to her book signing. Mhm. Right, yeah. yeah. And then and then I was at Bonita's when she opened her office in Oakland, because I think she's a chiropractic doctor. She's a, she's a chiropractic doctor, and she had an office up in Peel Hill, and mm-hmm. you probably did the opening of that, and yes, Akila and, yeah, it's, and it's, I, yeah. all mm-hmm. of us, because we support one another. This family believes in supporting one another. That's why mm-hmm. we can be as successful and do as well as we do, because we are united. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And um, do you have a few more minutes? I most certainly do, but I want you to see these beautiful flowers. Thank you. Oh, my God, I just received the most beautiful bouquet of Oh, my God, are they beautiful. Mm, oh, my nice. God. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, I'd love to take a picture, and if you could see this. Oh yeah, the, you could you could take a picture with your cell phone. Who sent them to you? I'm trying to see from the envelope. Oh my God, mm-hmm. I, they are so so beautiful. Well, it's not. Oh, from Dr. Morris and his family. Mm-hmm. Thinking about you <laughs> on a special day. Happy Mother's Day, love the Morris family. Those are nice. members of Downs Church. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah. I gotta take a picture. You, I don't know how I can show it to you. Oh, but it's well. You, well, you can describe them. Tell us, tell us some of the flowers. You know, the colors, the bloom. Tell us what you're looking at. The pink, pink roses, white roses. Oh my God! And another rose that's pink and white. Oh my mm-hmm. God! How beautiful! And the vase is so. The container is so beautiful. Ah, mm. ah, that's all I can say is ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but I must say I'm okay. well thought of. I'm well thought of, and, and I appreciate it. I'm just so loved, and I, oh, my God, am I loved, and I appreciate being loved, and I love everybody. You know why I love everybody? Because everybody mm. is God's child, and why mm. shouldn't I love the people I haven't even met yet? And I certainly mm-hmm. love the ones that I have met. Right. Oh, yeah. I tell you, love is the answer. Right, that's so true. And, and they love you back, too, Sister Sadie. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was uh, just thinking about when you were telling us earlier about uh, sort of coming into your 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 drawing, you know, um, uh, skills, you know, as, as at a ninety three, and and then having that wonderful art show, I was just thinking how 
you know, when um, when you and, and Brother Cleophas would travel, you would take pictures. So you have all these beautiful pictures of your travels, and then he would write uh he would write the story about your travels, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that and tell us some of the stories, uh, particularly like maybe South Africa, because uh, the former, um, I guess, minister of um, of Downs um, was South African, and um, that's right. Now let so me anyway. tell you, and he is getting. Of course, I don't know if this is going to happen now, because he still mm-hmm. does tours for South Africa, and he had mm-hmm. one coming up. For November of this year But anyway mm-hmm. As we travel to every continent And all the places Cleophas kept journals And mm-hmm. he wrote every day And then when he'd come home He'd compile them So I have a journal of every place That we visited Written by Cleophas And mm-hmm. of course me I had a camera around my neck and I have the pictures, uh, the picture books of all the places we we travel. So between you can you can read the story and then you can see the pictures. We were mm-hmm. marvelous team period, but most certainly on our travels. Uh, but I do have a journal, and he was a fantastic writer. He, and also that's reason that's reason I wanted his name and address because he was a fantastic speaker too, a very elegant speaker. He was mm-hmm. just a fantastic man. But anyway, uh I do have journals of all of our travels and I have pictures, uh individual books and and they're all well done because 'cause I'm very orderly. I keep I I'm a very good record keeper and orderly. But anyway, mm-hmm. I love sharing Cleophas's journals and my pictures, and I'll say, anyone that want to visit me, when we can have visitors, I will be happy to share my books and my pictures. Mm-hmm. Now, when we in South Africa, we went with the my minister at that time at Downs was from South Africa, Reverend Saul and uh, Kelvin Saul. And he kept us busy from 9 a.m. every morning on the buses till 9 o'clock at night because that was his <laughs> home. We traveled all over South Africa, and he was wanting to show us everything. Then after 9 o'clock, he would take them to jazz sessions because he's he's, he loves jazz. But you're talking about some great musicians, of course, I must say this about Africa. Africa is one of the most beautiful places to visit. And remember that the United States do not ever, ever show you the wealth of the people and the beauties of the cities. Intend for black people to know how rich and intelligent, oh, God, you talk about intelligence, and how they make and do absolutely anything and do it well. I would tell people every black person should visit Africa. I hear people rather visit Europe than Africa, but they real they really don't realize what they are missing in their own lives to know who they are. There's no way for you to really know who you are until you know about Africa. 
Africa is one of the most intelligent places and the most intelligent people. And those children there, all of them are eager, eager to learn. But make be sure that the the white media will never, never let you know the wealth of the people and the wealth of the country in Africa. Beautiful cities, beautiful homes, beautiful. And they do every, everything. They do what the South used to do, especially Houston, used to do in black. They run everything in Africa. I used to ask Brother Cleophas if he would put money in Africa, and especially Zimbabwe, which is one of my favorite places. Oh, Sister Sadie, you're breaking up right at the moment. All right. Is, is it time for me to be off? Say it again. All right. All right. Is it time for me to finish? Oh, no, I just was wondering, um, all of a sudden you're, break, you're breaking up. I was just wondering maybe, I don't know what's happening with our connection, Um but I want I wanted to be able to hear what you're saying. That's why I was telling you that you were breaking up. I was just talking about how wealthy Africa is, and the media of America will never want black people to know how intelligent Africans are. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Um. Wanda, don't call keep on me talking. so I can always talk. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to have you on again um, since um, I can't hear you really well anymore. Um, right. so I don't okay. know what happened. All right. We'll say goodbye. Okay. Thank you so much, Sister Sadie, um, and happy love Mother's you. Day. Thank you so much. Thank you, and love you. Bye-bye. I love Bye-bye. you, too. Bye-bye. I'll happy Mother's Day to you, sweetheart. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You take good care. All right, you too. Love you. Bye-bye. I love you. Peace and blessings. So we are going to close um, with uh, something from Leroy Moore. Actually, I, I didn't realize that I had all these po- oh, these poems here. Um, he's got I've got The Real Jim Crow and uh, Moan to Me. And I don't know what they, I don't know, I don't, I don't remember <laughs> these particular poems. And uh, and then we've got the song "Strength of a Man" story that he told us that he wrote the lyrics to. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to play uh, the real Jim Crow, um, this poem, and then uh, we'll close with this uh, "Strength of a Man" story. And don't forget um, today at four o'clock. Um, it's going to be uh, a really wonderful program, and you can go to um, Crip Hop Nation uh, in Facebook to be able to um, get the information about about the uh, the program today, um, and also um, Leroy uh, F. Moore, Leroy Franklin Moore, is about another way you can find them on uh, Facebook. Oh, wow. Maybe it's me. Oh, 
that was strange. <laughs> so let's let's just try Strength of a Man's story. Hope that works. Hi, Rob the Noise Temple here. And this is the story behind The Strength of a Man, written by Rob the Noise Temple and Leroy F. Moore. When my partner Leroy F. Moore approached me about writing a song about being black and masculine for his upcoming men's project performance on the West Coast, the word strength immediately stood out in my mind. For we in the disabled community are perceived as weak, useless, an abnormality. Naturally, the cards are stacked against me. Being black, being disabled, being old <laughs> arises questions of my masculinity. Having been married three times, I have been blessed with three beautiful wives in my life. Yet some men and even women may wonder what a woman might see in me. Because of my physical disability, I am perceived as less than a man in their eyes. Uh, perhaps I cannot do some of the things that men can do, fix cars and household repair, etc. However, does that make me less than a man? I hold a black belt in Taekwondo. Does that increase the machismo in me? Increase the testosterone levels in my body? I am much more than a man. A mystery. An enigma. If anyone cares to look beneath the surface, they will find a man that has kicked stumbling blocks aside, arose to face all obstacles and challenges in a lifetime with just one hand, against all odds. I never ask for sympathy, just a bit of compassion and fairness. When we view images of perfection on TV, in movies, and print, and especially in the music business, we never stop to ask ourselves, who set the standards for this perfect look? This perfect body, this perception of beauty that society has placed so much emphasis on. For 40 years, I have struggled in the music industry for acceptance, respect, and perhaps a bit of humanity. However, constantly told by music executives, we can't market you because of your disability. Once again, not fitting into their scheme of things, not matching their sexual macho masculine image of perceived perfection. The cultural racism is able to hide itself behind many isms and stereotypes. However, I challenge the status quo, never letting anyone limit my possibilities or hinder my inherent potential capacity. Judge me by my character, by my body of works, the accomplishments, I have been able to achieve because of my belief in God and in what I am here to do. The strength of a man comes from what is in his heart, what is in his soul. That divine spark made in the image and likeness of his creator. Peace. Well, I'm not quite clear on why that, why the... Um Wow, wow, the reception was so weird. But um but anyway, I'm glad it came clear in the end. I want to share some poetry that comes into my mailbox every day. And this is from the Academy of American Poets um uh Academy of American Poets um newsletter and um it's it's called um Poems to Share on Mother's Day. And I want to share a few with you 
in the remaining time. Uh, this one here is, uh, Today I Remember the Creator, the Lionhearted, and that's uh, For My Mother by May Sarton. Let's see if there was more to it than that. Oh, here we are. Um, Once more I summon you out of the past with poignant love, you who nourish the poet and the lover. I see your gray eyes looking out to sea in those rockport summers, keeping a distance within the closeness which was never intrusive, opening out into the world. And what I remember is how we laughed till we cried, swept into merriment, especially when times were hard. And what I remember is how you never stopped creating and how people sent me dresses you had designed with rich embroidery and brilliant colors because they could not bear to give them away or cast them aside. I summon you now not to think of the ceaseless battle with pain and ill health, the frailty and the anguish. No, today I remember the Creator, the Lionhearted. So that was for my mother from uh, Coming into 80 by... May Sarton, um, and uh, let's read a read a few more. I saw one that's uh, by Lucille Clifton. Love Lucille Clifton, and this one. Um, and oh, and I see a Wanda Coleman too. So we're gonna do the Lucille Clifton first. Uh, my mama moved among the days, and Lucille Clifton is an ancestor. Um, um, she is the author of Blessing the Boats, New and Selected Poems. And um she in that particular poem that particular collection won the National Book Award and was selected a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets in nineteen ninety nine. And she was born in nineteen thirty six and made her transition ten years ago in two thousand ten. So I shade to her memory. My mama moved among the days like a dream walker in a field. Seemed like what she touched was hers. Seemed like what touched her couldn't hold. She got us almost through the high grass. Then seemed like she turned around and ran right back in, right back on in. So that's Mama Moved Among the Days by Lucille Clifton. Um, I'm going to read another one, uh, Cutting the Cutting Greens. Cutting Greens. Curling them around, I hold their bodies in obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kidnap, thinking of everything but kinship. Collards and kale strain against each strange other, away from my kiss-making hand and the iron bed pot. The pot is black. The cutting board is black. My hand, and just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife. And the kitchen twists dark on its spine, and I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. Okay. And this one here is um, by uh, Wanda Coleman. Dear Mama, four. And Wanda Coleman was born in 1946. And she's the author of several poetry collections, including Bathwater Wine, 1998, which won the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize. Dear Mama, when did we become friends? It happened so gradual I didn't notice. Maybe I had to get my run out first, take a big bite of the hunky world and choke on it. Maybe that's what has to happen with some uppity youngsters if it happens at all. 
And now the thought, stark and irrevocable, of being here without you shakes me. Beyond love, fear, regret, or anger, into that realm children go, who want to care for, protect their parents, as if they could, and sometimes the lucky ones do, into the realm of making every moment important, laughing as though laughter wards off death, each word given received like Spanish eight, treasure to bury within against that shadow day, when it will be the only coin I possessed with which to buy peace of mind. So that was Wanda Coleman. That was beautiful. And uh, Juan Felipe Herrera, who lives here in the Bay, um, my mother's name, Lucia, and Juan Felipe Herrera was born in 1948. And he... uh, He's a poet laureate of the United States, and he served on the board of chancellors of the Academy of American Poets from 2011 to 2016. Your hands, my hands, kindness dances, silences sitting. You, I, El Paso, Texas, Segundo Barrio, Juarez, 1918, 1936 in gypsy dress, actress. You sing, I sing, we, I, we sing, lullabies of old. This now lines now, my birth, heart now, life, all life now, I bow to you. So that was Juan Felipe Herrera. Uh, that was beautiful. And um, and then we've got Lee Young Lee. And Lee Young Lee was born in 1957 in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, to Chinese parents. I ask my mother to sing. She begins and my grandmother joins her. Mother and daughter sing like young girls. If my father were alive, he would play his accordion and sway like a boat. I've never been in Peking or the Summer Palace, nor stood on the great stone boat to watch the rain begin on Kyu Ming Lake, the picnickers running away in the grass. But I love to hear it sung how the water lilies fill with rain until they overturn, spilling water into water, then rock back and fill with more. Both women have begun to cry, but neither stops her song. So that was Lee Young Lee. And Adan, um, or Ada, Ada, excuse me, Limon. Let's try this one. Um, The Raincoat. 1976 is uh, she's the author of Caring uh, and the Bright Dead Things, and which was a finalist in the National Book Award. When the doctor suggested surgery and a brace for all my youngest years, my parents scrambled to take me to massage therapy, deep tissue work, osteopathy, and soon my crooked spine unspooled a bit. I could breathe again and move more in a body un clouded by my mom would tell me to sing songs to her the whole 45 minute drive to middle to rock road and 45 minute back from physical therapy she say even my voice sounded unfettered by my spine afterward so i sang and sang because i thought she liked it i never asked her what she gave up to drive me how her day before was before this chore today at her age i was driving myself home from yet another spine appointment singing along to some maudlin but sordid song on the radio. And I saw a mom take her raincoat off 
and give it to her younger her young daughter when a storm took over the afternoon. My God, I thought. My whole life I've been under her raincoat thinking it was somehow a marvel that I never got wet. So want to um close with uh an ashe to all the mothers, mothers past, mothers futures. And um yeah, uh to um wish you all happy Mother's Day and happy Mother's Day to the to the men who are also mothers who are mothering like um uh sister Sadie's son Dan who just made his transition March 26, 2020. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful program. And uh, we have five more minutes. So what are we going to do? Are we going to try this? Maybe try playing this uh, Strength of a Man one more time. Maybe it will play better this time. Hi, Rob the Noise Temple here. And this is the story behind The Strength of a Man. Written by Rob Benoit Temple and Leroy F. Moore. When my partner Leroy F. Moore approached me about writing a song about being black and masculine for his upcoming men's project performance on the West Coast, the word strength immediately stood out in my mind. For we in the disabled community are perceived as weak, useless, and abnormality. Naturally, the cards are stacked against me. Being black, being disabled, being old, (laughs) arises questions of my masculinity. Having been married three times, I have been blessed with three beautiful wives in my life. Yet some men, and even women, may wonder what a woman might see in me. Because of my physical disability, I am perceived as less than a man in their eyes. Uh, Perhaps I cannot do some of the things that men can do, fix cars and household repair, etc. However, does that make me less than a man? I hold a black belt in Taekwondo. Does that increase the machismo in me? Increase the testosterone levels in my body? I am much more than a man. I'm mystery, an enigma. If anyone cares to look beneath the surface, they will find a man that has kicked stumbling blocks aside, arose to face all obstacles and challenges in a lifetime with just one hand, against all odds. I never asked for sympathy, just a bit of compassion and fairness. When we view images of perfection on TV, in movies, and print, and especially in the music business, we never stop to ask ourselves, who set the standards for this perfect look, this perfect body? This perception of beauty that society has placed so much emphasis on. For 40 years I have struggled in the music industry for acceptance, respect, and perhaps a bit of humanity. However, constantly told by music executives, we can't market you because of your disability. Once again, not fitting into their scheme of things, not matching their sexual macho masculine image of perceived perfection. The culture of racism is able to hide itself behind many-isms and stereotypes. However, I challenge the status quo, never letting anyone limit my possibilities or hinder my inherent potential capacity. Judge me by my character, by my body of works, the accomplishments I have been able to achieve because of my belief in God 
and in what I am here to do. The strength of a man comes from what is in his heart, what is in his soul. That divine spark made in the image and likeness of his creator. Peace. So again, um, visit the website um, to get information about the program today at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Um, Hip Hop, uh, no, Crick, Crip, Crip Hop Nation (laughs) on Facebook. And Leroy uh, Franklin Moore, um, Leroy F. Moore, you can find him there. And yeah, look forward to seeing you today.